we are starting with our meeting. Thank you very much for logging in. Uh, may I request uh, Ms. Machalamba or whoever she has asked to uh, give us an update of members who are present and those who have apologized. I have received also apologies, but I would imagine the members also forwarded them directly to the secretariat. Uh, for various reasons, some members will join us either late or are, are able to join us today. Can I give that opportunity now to Ms. Machalamba? Good morning and thank you, Chair. Present is Dr. Jomo, Mr. Munyai, Ms. Gela, Mr. Sokacha, Dr. Jacobs, Ms. Kwahube, Ms. Wilson, Ms. Ishmael. Uh, I've received an apology from Mr. Van Staden. He won't be able to join today's meeting. Thank you, Chair. Okay. May you then flight the agenda for us for today? With the hope that uh, the time <laughs> schedules have been thoroughly checked and there's no two hour more given to one person. Psychology Society. Okay. Okay. Education. Presented by Psychology Society. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, honorable members, uh, I would also request that Ms. Machamba, you forward this to me uh, uh, in my other WhatsApp. I just missed, I deleted it by mistake. Psychology and another psychology. Okay, thank you very much, members. This is, uh, uh, I am really sure the way we work so smart, we'll make our closing remarks just at six o'clock sharp, I can tell. I feel it, and I know you are going to support that. Um, can we then get to see uh, the first presenters uh, who are here to present to us Psychology Society of South Africa? Um, thank you very much. Uh, I, I, I do notice that down the line, we have another presentation by what called? Yesterday we had counseling psychology. Now we have psychology uh, of South Africa. Midday we are going to have another psychology. Show me that agenda so that the, the gender, uh, just show that agenda again, Ms. Machalamba, so that the, the gentleman who's about to present will have to educate us. It was at 12.30, or these ones are educational psychology. Uh, there's educational psychology. Now we have the Psychology Society of South Africa. And yesterday we had the counseling psychology. Uh, as you present, you'll indicate to us whether who is a subset of who. Uh, because uh, uh, there must be some synergy and uh, collaboration within the psychologists in the country. Uh, so we'll rely on you educating us about the counseling psychology of yesterday. Psychology Society that you are about to lead, and there's a later in the afternoon educational psychology. Okay, the floor is yours. Uh, introduce yourself and the team. You will have 45 minutes uh, starting from now to make your presentation. Thereafter, honorable members will interact with your presentation and then we'll take it from there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, I'm, I trust that everybody can hear me. Um, uh, good morning to all members of the committee and uh, thank you for the invitation to submit to, uh, to the committee today.
my name is Professor Garth Stevens. I am a uh, professor of psychology at the uh, University of the Witwatersrand. I'm also the Dean of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of the Witwatersrand. But uh, I speak today as the president of the Psychological Society of South Africa. Uh, Chair, if I may just take 10 seconds, I, I will uh, respond to your question. The Psychological Society of South Africa is the largest organization uh, representing psychological practitioners in South Africa at the moment. Uh, also representing the science, the discipline, and the profession of psychology in South Africa. It uh, was inaugurated uh, in the, uh, the same year as we transitioned to democracy in uh, 1994. And uh, there are a number of other psychological bodies that represent specific subsectors, such as educational psychology, clinical psychology, counseling psychology. Ours is a psychological society that represents um, uh, an entire array of different uh, um, categories of psychologists and psychological practitioners. And we are at this point, as I've indicated, we have re working relationships with many of these groups, but in fact, um, are, the, are the largest generalist psychological society uh, in the country at the moment. So I do hope that that clarifies, Chair. Um, I, I would like to just indicate that I do have a team of colleagues with me at the moment. I have uh, the executive director of the Psychological Society, Fatima Sidat, uh, my colleague Santosh Pillay, and uh, I also have my colleague, I think, Anne uh, Kramers is also in uh, today as part of the team who worked on this particular submission. So again, many thanks to all of you for the sake of brevity and to ensure that we maintain to your, your time schedule today. Uh, I will present the submission in summary and, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to interact with the, the committee more broadly beyond this. Uh, my colleagues, I will call on my colleagues if necessary during the course of the Q&A uh, to clarify any issues that I may not have sufficiently clarified, given that they were part and parcel of the task team that put this, uh, this particular submission together. So Chair, may I share my screen? Uh, can everybody see this? Yes, we can. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so again, colleagues, uh, thank you for, for inviting us to be here today. I do at the outset want to acknowledge uh, my colleagues, Sharon Klenkis, who could not be here, Daniel Hilbrand and Ho Den Hollander, Santosh Pillay, who is here, and Anne Krams Olin, who's here, uh, who worked on this particular submission. Uh, I think that we did send through a pack at some point to speak uh, to this, and this included, in fact, a, uh, a, a publication from which much of this has been drawn. Uh, my colleague Sharon Clank is, is at the Division of Intellectual Disability at the Department of Psychiatry and Mental Health at UCT. Uh, others are from a private practice in Cape Town, King Dinazulu Hospital Complex, the Department of Psychiatry at uh, UKZN, uh, Fort Napier, and then of course the Department of Behavioral Medicine at Nelson Mandela School of Medicine at UKZN as well. This particular publication was also attached to the pack that we submitted to the committee. And so uh, for further 
explication, uh, please do refer to this. I also would uh, want to kind of start by just speaking to the question of uh, the, the background to this process. Of course, the NHI bill presents a, an opportunity to step up uh, and to ramp up the implementation of national policy commitments to improve service access, delivery, and outcomes, in, including bringing parity to an uh, often overlooked mental health needs in South Africa. And I, I do speak here about parity in two different ways. I think that we have to recognize that there have been historical uh, inequities in the system that have really meant that not all uh, sectors of the population have had access to mental health services. And so uh, as we deal with these historical legacies, of course, the NHI bill represents an opportunity to ramp these up to ensure much more equitable access. But there have also be, been issues of parity within the health system itself. I think it's important to recognize that actually the uh, mental health resourcing in South Africa has often been much lower than other parts of the health sector. And of course, we are constantly trying to think about how it is that this is appropriately resourced in a country like South Africa. To give you one example, by 2050, we expect the, we predict the global population to be somewhere in the region of 10 billion people. And about 50% of those people are likely to be in Africa with uh, many of these comprising young people. We already know that the global burden of disease around mental health uh, is a significant contributor or mental health distress is a significant contributor to the global burden of disease. And of course, uh, we've also seen that COVID has accelerated the, uh, the experiences of mental distress and mental disorder uh, in countries like South Africa. We anticipate, of course, that this is simply going to become a challenge that we cannot uh, um, not, you know, foresee in, into the future uh, and, and that we're going to have to be attentive to it and to attenuate it as far as possible. We also know that about 30% of people will, in South Africa will at some point experience a mental disorder uh, in the, the course of their lifetime. Uh, that's just one, less than one in three at this point. And so, of course, there is the question of resourcing uh, versus... I don't want to stop you, but portfolio committee members become weary when you speak to a presentation that is not in front of them. All what you are saying, those figures, those uh, uh, projections, we don't have them in front of us. So maybe uh, if you have those additional information, we should have had that written down. Otherwise, they become very uh, unhappy to uh, interact with the presentation that they didn't see, they didn't hear. Uh, uh, very well noted, uh, Chair. I will stick to the, the content of the presentation then as, and I won't embellish. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I think that the, that the important, uh, the, the important point to, to make here, of course, is that uh, we understand that there have been both historical inequities and that there are current inequities within the health system itself. Uh, the NHI bills focus on universal health care as a social investment is something that the Psychological Society of South Africa welcomes, and we would support this. We support the idea that uh, this is predicated on a social justice, justice premise. Um, but, of course, there are a number of uh, key concerns that we would want to express in relation to the NHI bill. And so I would like to then spend a little bit of time speaking specifically to this. Uh, 
The consultation process that we undertook as the Psychological Society of South Africa, when the white paper was released, we had submitted this to the, uh, you know, with, within the legislative process. Uh, we submitted this in 2016. Following this, uh, of course, in 2019, uh, at our annual Congress, we debated the matter of the National Health Insurance Bill, and we had established an ad hoc committee within the Psychological Society to canvas members' views. And uh, what you then see a year after is an analysis of uh, those views and some of our thoughts on uh, the NHI Bill. Uh, CISA, of course, we have a vested model, social, academic, and, and clinical interest in the National Health Insurance Bill uh, generally, and, and of course, related to the psychological services in particular. Uh, we believe that we've all placed as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that, uh, that really supports and represents many psychology professionals, including psychologists, registered counselors, and psych uh, psychometrists, to be able to, uh, to be able to articulate these on their behalf. So, Chair, uh, we, we really want to put forward eight considerations at this time. Uh, that we, and while we believe in the universal health coverage in principle, we think that there are a number of uh, areas that we could probably make comment on to strengthen uh, the NHI bill and its ability to, to be responsive to mental health needs. Of course, we understand that a bill uh, by its nature does not have all the detail that is required to operationalize and enact this, and that it is scaffolded on a number of other acts, amendments, etc., uh, and that, that, of course, there's a raft of supporting legislation and policies. Um, and so the, the way that I really do want to speak to this today is to speak to not only elements of the bill itself, but also some perceptions related to the detail or the absence of detail and to seek some clarity, perhaps, as our, our membership has, uh, has indicated. The eight points that I really want to go through during the course of the next, uh, the next several minutes or during our allotted time, it really speaks to the importance of integrating mental health care more effectively into the, uh, into the NHI. Uh, we see that in the bill at the moment, in fact, the, uh, the, the idea of mental health is, is really only mentioned, I think, peripherally uh, in 10 or 11 instances. Um, and so we would want to think quite carefully about how it is that mental health is foregrounded more effectively into the bill itself. The second point is that we would really want to think uh, about ensuring equitable access to health services for all people. Uh, and I'll speak to all of these in ex an extended way a little later. We would want to think about uh, and, and to articulate some ideas about the improvement of human resources for mental health, specifically in the public health sector at the moment. Uh, we have some uh, questions about the clarification around the accreditation standards and the contractual uh, conditions for service providers. We would also uh, want to raise questions about the intersection or the relationship between private practitioners and the public sector. Uh, in other words, the private sector and the public sector and how these are integrated into the health system and uh, it, how this is thought about inside the NHI bill. We furthermore would want to think about uh, including mental health expertise in the advisory structures of the NHI much more explicitly. Uh, then setting out a robust accountability framework within the NHI. And finally, to conclude, we would want to speak to the idea of including mental health indicators in the national health information system or in a national data uh, uh, clearinghouse of sorts. So if I can take each of these uh, individually, uh, <clears throat> I think that 
uh, important to say is that uh, that as we uh, as we think about integrating mental health more effectively, uh, I think that it, it would be critical to recognize that we have to provide adequate mental health services that address existing systemic challenges. And yeah, I referred to the uh, Human Rights Commission report of 2019, of course, that uh, that speaks to the state of mental health care in South Africa, where it notes the uh, substantial under-resourcing and in some instance, the neglect of mental health uh, within South African society. Uh, it seems to me that the that a bill of this nature will have to speak specifically to this particular under-resourcing and what has been referred to in uh, the Human Rights Commission report as systemic neglect. The second point uh, I think here is to note that uh, the bill speaks specifically to the promotion of uh, of, of health and access to health care, uh, the universal health care. Uh, for, for all South African citizens. Um, what it is much less silent on perhaps is the uh, nature of community interventions and the work of primary pre preventative care and community-based care and rehabilitation. Here we're specifically thinking about the utilization of registered counselors more effectively. Uh, for colleagues on the committee uh, may know that uh, in South Africa, uh, somebody studying for four years can exit and be uh, qualified as a registered counselor, while those who uh, need to qualify as clinical psychologists or educational or counseling psychologists generally have to take in the region of six years in order for, for them to be uh, practitioners. So the bill is less clear about the kinds of primary prevention work that is necessary. It's also less clear about the community-based care and rehabilitation processes that may be central to uh, mitigating mental health distress in a country like South Africa. And yeah, I think also about uh, the, the matter of life is the many and the community-based care and rehabilitation services that would be offered under, under such circumstances. I think it's also important to note that uh, the relationship between mental health and physical health is not really articulated uh, very clearly inside the, the bill itself. Uh, and we say that partly because, of course, physical health often brings with it a whole range of mental challenges and psychological sequelae. And at the same time, uh, often patients who are seen for mental health conditions may have associated physical health conditions, but these two don't really get spoken about in a significant way inside the bill itself. And so the question of integration, I think, is something that is, uh, that, that is front and center for us as the Psychological Society of South Africa. The fourth point here is, of course, one has to take into account the context of South African society. And we believe that the high levels of uh, violence and trauma uh, in South African society uh, that has been almost endemic in South African society is something that contributes significantly to the mental health burden in the country at present. And we think that and we believe that, in fact, violence and trauma as a cross-cutting issue has to be considered much more explicitly in the context of uh, psychological service delivery and certainly as part of uh, health service delivery more broadly today. Uh, if I can go on to the second of the eight points, uh, is really about ensuring equitable access to, to health services for all. Uh, the bill speaks about you know, ensuring that there's some degree of assessment of, uh, of patients who are seeking uh, mental health services or health services, and of course, indicates that 
where those are not warranted or whether they are not where they are not cost effective or where they simply cannot be uh, provided that in fact uh, you know a facility may not be able to may in fact be able to not provide treatment under those circumstances i think it's again important for us to understand how it is that such assessment would be conducted for potential patients coming into uh, these facilities and seeking out uh, services from providers and practitioners. Uh, it is all too easy to say that we require an assessment, but the question about who would conduct that assessment, how would we ensure quality assurance around accurate assessment for access to care would be quite important in our view. Uh, we would also want to ensure that the access is not denied by cumbersome registration requirements for users. We know of other systems, for example, across the world where uh, the extent of the, the waiting time inside these, uh, these centrally run services for uh, entire population cohorts uh, means excessively long waiting periods and cumbersome registration requirements uh, can also in fact prolong that. This also speaks to the question of, of course, ensuring timely access to care and recognizing uh, mental health emergencies. Uh, we are not seeing any distinction between chronic and acute uh, care that may be required at a given point in time. And so we, we would think that at some place, uh, if not in the bill, then in uh, those uh, frameworks that are associated with the bill that we would have to think quite carefully about timely access to care and recognizing mental health emergencies uh, that are, of course, mainly of an acute nature rather than of a uh, chronic nature. Given uh, the point that I'd made earlier on about the population growth uh, and also the, the way that populations are likely to swing towards younger populations, um, I think there's an importance for prioritizing children and adolescents specifically also because they are uh, much more precarious and are often at risk and much more vulnerable uh, in relation to mental health and mental health uh, service delivery and provision. Uh, furthermore, we think that the idea of disability is not particularly disaggregated at this point. Uh, there's the assumption that disability often speaks to the idea of physical disability, but of course we can also think about mental, intellectual and sensory disability and in some ways these require different standards and levels of care and they, 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 they in fact should be in some ways be disaggregated even though they may in fact be related. I think that uh, the provision of adequate services for refugees is touched on in the bill, asylum seekers and, uh, you know, foreigners who may not be uh, legally uh, in South Africa. But I think that we need to think quite carefully again about how it is that registration would occur in, in, in all of its technical and practical and pragmatic ways uh, so that we avoid the idea of a, a medical xenophobia or a health xenophobia of sorts. SISA has also been at the forefront of looking at questions of gender, as we have uh, been thinking about uh, questions of race and questions of disparity in the health and mental health sector. And so questions of gender fluidity and affirmative health care, we think is also going to be important and we believe is going to be important as part of a raft of services that are offered to the citizenry of South Africa. And then finally, Chair, around ensuring equitable access to health services for all, we also believe that there's going to need to be an improvement in access to forensic mental health services. And here we speak of not only those forensic mental health services that are related to people who may be awaiting assessment for fitness to stand trial, but also in the psycholegal domains of 
uh, the placement of children in custodial disputes, uh, as well as in places where uh, we may in fact have juveniles who have committed a crime. And in, in fact, we may want to be thinking quite carefully about the diversions away from the criminal justice system uh, into diversion programs of sorts, so that we in fact avoid the knock-on effects of having young offenders being placed uh, in incarcerated situations. The third point uh, to, to make really is about improving human resources for mental health. And again, I think I referred to the South African Human Rights Commission report of 2019 that speaks specifically about the underfunding of, uh, of mental health posts uh, in the public sector in particular that really will be required to close the treatment gap that we see at the moment. Uh, clearly, the need is, is much greater than what it is that we can offer in terms of the current public health sector resourcing. It is also important to remember that, of course, uh, the relationship is not only one of a disparity between mental health resourcing and other parts of the health system, but there's also a disparity in the number of psychological practitioners or mental health practitioners who find themselves in rural areas versus peri-urban areas versus urban areas. By far, the, the, the greatest number of uh, psychological practitioners are in fact uh, located in urban areas and there is uh, the center of gravity of that delivery is certainly in, uh, in urban areas. The third point about improving human resources for mental health speaks to the question of norms and standards for mental health. And, and here, uh, the work by Lunt and Fleischer, I think uh, speaks to a set of norms and standards that were thought about in, uh, in 2006. And in fact, this requires urgent review. They're probably about 15 years old at this point. And of course, the norms and standards for mental health care have shifted over the last decade and more. And we would have to think about what the best practices are uh, in terms of offering the optimal services for mental health in a country like South Africa. Chair, if I then may move on to my fourth point, uh, which really is about clarifying the accreditation standards and the contractual conditions for service providers. Uh, I, I think it's important to say that the clarity will be required. Uh, it's unclear from the bill uh, on how standards will be set for contracting, monitoring and evaluating accredited healthcare service providers or establishment as per, per section 39 of the bill as it stands. Uh, we believe, of course, that accreditation should be overseen by the healthcare practitioners from specific disciplines. In other words, uh, that, that where we are accrediting uh, psychologists or psychological practitioners or mental health practitioners, that we should, in fact, be including other uh, psychological practitioners to be able to assist in the accreditation uh, for contracting, monitoring, and evaluation or evaluating uh, healthcare service providers or establishments. The bill also does not make any mention of mechanisms to accredit and fund health services which cross district operational areas, for example, telehealth services. We say that because what COVID has done is it has also accelerated new modes of service delivery and we're going to have to think about uh, increasing digitization and digitalization of some of these services, but the bill does not speak specifically to, uh, to these kinds of services at this time. Uh, Point five of our submission is really about improving the utilization of private practitioners within an integrated health system. I think the, the, the takeaway uh, for us is that 
the the NHI, you know, would would uh, in our view need to leverage the private sector and public sector as a strategy for sustainability. Uh, the relationship between the two is unclear at the moment. So the role of medical aid schemes, uh, as spelled out in the in the current bill, speaks about uh, complementarity of services and the fact that uh, end users may be able to. Uh, utilize those services of their own volition, but also at their own cost, potentially. Uh, the, the exact relationship between the private sector and the public sector is unclear. Now, uh, we raise this partly because most psychologists, certainly, and most psychological uh, practitioners currently work in private practice and are, in fact, uh, reimbursed for their labors uh, through private medical aid schemes. And so there is, of course, the question of rates or tariffs and a concern about professional flight. Now, I know that in some instances, this has become the cornerstone of many arguments that we have to be concerned about professional flight. I think we raising professional flight as a concern. It is not the cornerstone of our submission. We certainly are concerned about what this would mean for uh, a whole uh, range of practitioners who have traditionally been in the private sector themselves. And, and uh, in some ways, this may be attenuated and attended to by, uh, you know, economies of scale that would be different uh, under the NHI. But we don't know that for sure. And uh, I think that this would require some clarity as well. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I, I think it would be important for recommendations of the Competition Commission report for 2019 also to be implemented. And uh, as we all know, the, there's a disproportionate uh, utilization of public health services in South Africa uh, as opposed to private health services. Much smaller percentage of the population use uh, private medical aids and, and, of course, the vast majority of people utilize the public health system. Uh, we, we would want to see some uh, clear guidelines of how it is that tariffs and uh, uh, contracts for service providers in the private sector would not overburden the fund disproportionately uh, in, in the context of a, a very needy population. Uh, and then finally, Chair, I, I think that it's going to be important for us to consider what we mean definitionally by private uh, practitioners or service providers. Uh, we, of course, think that this may include an array of alternative and evidence-based practitioners that are not specifically referred to, whether these are uh, clinical social workers, whether these are psychological counselors. Uh, in, in general, the idea of mental health tends to be dominated by those who are either qualified as psychiatrists or those who are qualified as, as psychologists. And we think that this needs to be broadened to consider a whole range of other mental health service providers uh, that many would seek out uh, in, in quite a legitimate manner. If I look specifically then at point six of our uh, of our submission, uh, this would really be to include mental health expertise in the NHI advisory structures. Again, uh, the... The, the submission really argues that all committees should strive to ensure comprehensive cover for all relevant psychotherapeutic and psychosocial treatments uh, that, that need to be available for the citizenry of our country. We believe that it would be important to ensure that we have specialized input from psychologists and from psychological practitioners, especially in relation to the Benefits Advisory Committee. Uh, the Benefits Advisory Committee seems to be a key committee because it will determine to a large degree uh, which services are available or at least are funded through the fund itself. And, and we would like to ensure 
that uh, psychological health, mental health is placed squarely on the gender here and that these are appropriate services that are rendered to, uh, to the public at large. Uh, the third point is that the bill, of course, also makes allowance for the, the convening of a number of committees uh, in Section 24. And again, I think that we would, uh, we would uh, recommend certainly convening a mental health services technical committee, uh, committee given uh, some of what I've already indicated in the presentation thus far, to assist with uh, enacting and implementing the bill and ensuring that the bill lives up to its potential uh, in meeting the needs uh, of, uh, of those who require mental health intervention. I suppose the important thing is that we are suggesting that discipline-specific expertise will be required on all advisory structures. And obviously, I speak for the Psychological Society of South Africa at this point, but I think it's important that discipline-specific expertise will be required across the range of health services that are envisaged by the NHI uh, on all of the advisory structures so that, uh, that we are able to offer optimal care. The seventh point that I uh, would like to uh, come, come to, of course, is the idea of a robust accountability framework within the NHI. And uh, of course, you know, if I, uh, if I look at uh, the quote that you see at the, at the top end of this particular slide, uh, there's a worrying centralization of power and decision-making and diminished service user autonomy in the bill. Even when citizens struggle to access healthcare, the majority are not willing to pay higher taxes for better healthcare if they do not trust their government. Now, I think that we have to be frank about the, the public concern with the trust deficit at this, at this moment. The, the NHI uh, bill suggests a fund that will be of significant uh, amounts uh, given, you know, the relative to the South African fiscus at the moment. And so we would want to, we would want to, uh, of course, articulate a view that all appointees from the CEO to members of the board, etc., cetera, uh, have to have impeccable model integrity and be in good standing. Uh, and we would argue for a robust public selection process here. The role of provincial departments relative to the National Minister of Health is also somewhat unclaimable. The latter seems to have an inordinate decision-making power in the current bill, and, and we would argue that this relationship requires some clarity. What is the realm of provincial uh, decision-making powers and what is the realm of uh, decision-making powers by the National Minister of Health uh, and, the, and the National Ministry? Uh, while the bill puts forward... Uh, you know, the idea of a central purchasing and payment system. We also are raising a question about how unwieldy this has the potential to be. It may be out of touch with the local particularities and the specificities that are required within particular provinces. And it may also be more easily open to abuse. The relationship between provincial and national level, again, in our view, requires clarification, as do the mechanisms of accountability in such a centralized purchasing and payment system. Uh, you know, at some point in the bill, uh, there's an indication that, that uh, complaints can be lodged and, in fact, uh, the fund itself will, will investigate these. Uh, but we do believe that uh, this should also be subject to some form of external scrutiny. Of course, the fund, uh, which is a public fund, should not be both referee and player under these circumstances. We would also like to see an explicated set of mechanisms that the minister will use for expenditure control of the fund. And, and lastly, I, I think that it would be important for us to understand the role of the health ombudsman uh, within the bill uh, as it is stated at present.
uh, Chair, the, the final point that we really wanting to get to uh, at this point uh, is the inclusion of uh, mental health indicators in the national health information system. Uh, of course, many of us have been arguing for a, a robust national health information system uh, and for its upscaling and for its ramping up over a long period of time, it is often functioned less than optimally. Uh, but our belief is that we need to support the development, the further development of this national health information system. And of course, we must include comprehensive mental health indicators if we are to track uh, the kind of uh, incidence and prevalence of mental health distress and disorders nationally with, uh, across our population. The second uh, point I think to take away here is that an accurate information system is needed to actually monitor and evaluate the NHI itself. And, and this seems to be absent uh, explicitly from, from the, the bill at this point. I think it would be important that as we roll out such a system that there would be built-in checks and balances to monitor and evaluate this. And of course, we are sure that uh, this has been considered, but we would like some clarity and and. Uh, clarification on this uh, even further. Uh, there are other systems. The NHS, for example, has been in place since 1948. That's uh, some more than 70 years. Uh, and we know it's still an evolving system. And so, of course, we would like to see a system that similarly evolves, but is evolving based on ongoing evaluation of the effectiveness, the efficiencies, and the inefficiencies of that system and where they can be corrected and remedied. We also believe that the technical infrastructure for uh, IT systems at public facilities will have to be improved markedly if such a national health information system together with comprehensive mental health indication, uh, indicators is to be, uh, is to be considered uh, utile or useful uh, in the planning and in the, uh, the prevention of, uh, of, of health and mental health uh, distress in our country. And then lastly, uh, really to argue that a digitally interconnected health system, uh, health system communication system is, is, is something that we would also advocate for. We think that this will add to greater efficiencies. We think it will add to greater resource distribution in places where there is low resource utility uh, as opposed to re uh, high resource utility. We see in time of COVID, for example, where there are uh, shortages of supplies in some parts of the country as opposed to other parts of the country. And we think that a digitally interconnected health system communication system would be needed uh, partly to enhance the kinds of efficiencies that we, that we are referencing at this point. Uh, Chair, so the, the, I know I have, I still have a couple of minutes. So let me just conclude with, with uh, again, a return to some of the take homes for us. I think we are saying that when we talk about an integrated mental health, uh, uh, integrating mental health more effectively into the NHI as a bill, we are talking about this being reflected in the bill so that it is also reflected in practice. It has not been sufficiently re integrated into existing health systems. And of course, we know about the historical inequities around, uh, around mental health service delivery in a country like South Africa. When we are talking about ensuring equitable access, we are talking about equitable access across the urban, the peri-urban, and the rural divide. And of course, we are talking about access to different kinds of cohorts within the population, whether these are uh, the young, 
whether these are uh, foreign nationals, whether these are those in community rehabilitation centers, we are indicating that there will be a need in a national, uh, uh, in the provision of mental health services to ensure that, uh, that such an equitable access is available uh, to, to the citizens of our country. The third point, again, the take-home is really the improvement of human resources for mental health. It is, again, uh, you know, quite clear to us that, uh, that we are going to have to fill positions and create positions in the public sector in particular that speaks specifically to mental health, uh, that speaks to specifically to mental health service provision. And this will not only have to be at the level of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists, but we would have to think about primary prevention as well as community-based care in this particular context. And, and the bill does not really speak to that, and we would like that. Um, clarifying the accreditation standards and contractual condi conditions for service providers is really important in, again, uh, speaking to quality assurance of mental health service provision in, uh, in a country like South Africa. We believe that uh, psychologists and psychological practitioners will need to be part and parcel of those accreditation processes to ensure that the appropriate level and type of care is delivered for, uh, for, our, for our people. Improving the utilization of private practitioners, I think that, again, the take-home here is really that, the, uh, that uh, they, we would require some clarification, I suspect, uh, about the intersection between the public and the private sector. Uh, and what this means for medical aids, what this means for uh, complementary services, what this means for those who have traditionally been in uh, private practice. Uh, and again, I think that we would be seeking some clarity on that in the bill itself. Including mental health expertise in the advisory structures, I think that uh, that was uh, fairly clear to us uh, that discipline-specific uh, and informed input from those within mental health would be important on all advisory structures of the NHI. And again, we would, we would suggest that this is probably the case for all uh, aspects of health service delivery, where such advisory structures, technical committees, etc., will probably require discipline-specific uh, uh, expertise. The, the idea of a robust accountability framework, I think two, two take-homes here. The first is that the relationship between a national government and the provinces, uh, I think, requires some explication in our view. Uh, and the parameters of decision-making uh, at the national level as opposed to the provincial level will probably require some, uh, some uh, further explication. And I think that there's, there's broadly a question about responding to what I think can be described as a trust deficit in South African society at present, that I think that the bill has to speak to the question of a trust deficit uh, in South African society and what mechanisms will be placed or be put in place to ensure that that trust deficit is minimized and reduced uh, when we are talking about the national health insurance, given the amounts of the fiscus that will be set aside for such a fund. And then finally, Chair, again, the idea of uh, the national health information uh, system. Again, we're talking about upskilling at, at the level of digitization and digitalization. We are talking about the inclusion of mental health indicators, and we are talking about ramping up the uh, national health information system as a data clearinghouse for, uh, for health in South African society more broadly. 
But Chair, I, uh, I think that I've, I may have saved five minutes on the, on the schedule at this time. I'm going to leave our submission there. And I thank the committee and uh, yourself as Chair for, uh, for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, your presentation will then be interacted upon by the members who have already indicated their desire to speak to this. Uh, thanks. Uh, in the following order, honorable members, I think the first one was honorable Munai, honor followed by honorable Kela, honorable Sokacha, honorable Dr. Tembekwai. Am I leaving anybody out so far? I haven't seen the updated one. Those are the Chair? ones. Those Chair? are the oh, Let me complete Chair? first. Let me complete first. The four is Honorable Munai, two Honorable Kela, three Honorable Sokacha, the fourth one Honorable Dr. Tembe Wai. Any other members would like to engage? Please be Chair, Honorable Wilson and Honorable Ismail. Okay, Honorable Wilson, you'll be number five. Honorable Ismail will be number six. And, uh, one after the other in that order. Jacob's Any chair? other member? Jacob's chair, can you hear me? Honorable Jacobs, you'll be number seven. Thank you. Okay, then you can start. Honorable Munai, you are number one. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. I have only one question. I want to understand uh, from the presenter, since they have mentioned that they, they do not believe that mental health is given the, the prominence it deserves in the NHI bill, are they aware that mental health is mentioned 11 times in the NHI bill, including the section four of the bill? This is also supported by NHI policy which state that mental health services will be included as part of the NHI com comprehensive services benefits, which will be determined by the, uh, by the benefits adversary committee. That is the fundamental question. I thought it will help the presenters as I'm asking for clarity. Honorable Kela. Thank you very much, Chair. Let me first welcome the presentation uh, from the Psychological Society of South Africa. Uh, Prof, uh, my question, you have uh, requested a clarity on accreditation standards and uh, contractual conditions for service provider. Are you aware that uh, clause 39 provides for accreditation of public and private health establishments by the fund. Uh, Section 39 outlines all the requirements for accreditation. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, <coughs> Chairperson. Um, I've got only one question for a point of clarity. The Psychological Society of South Africa in their presentation is requesting that parliament needs to ensure equitable access to health services for all people. 
Now, I just want to check, Chair, is the society aware that the mental health services within the NSI benefits will be defined by the Benefits Advisory Committee according to Section 25 of the bill supported by Section 4 and Section 7. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Uh, I've got only two questions. Uh, it's just uh, not questions, but the matter of, of clarity or providing extra information. And the first one is on the rural mental health posts uh, that needs uh, specific attention. And uh, the presenters made a specific reference to psychological uh, practitioners. And then I just want, I would like to ask the presenter to provide more information on this aspect and at least specify where this can be best placed in the bill as an, as an amendment to the existing uh, information. And the second one is based on the role of medical aid schemes, uh, where the presenter said he needs more clarity. And then I just would like to find out how, how would they best describe the role of medical aid scheme that would serve as a possible amendment to the information as reflected in the NHI bill. And uh, something at, at the end was mentioned, and I definitely tend to agree with them, where they say the majority are not willing to pay higher taxes for better health care if they do not have a trust uh, in their government. And uh, maybe a lot in this aspect can be discussed further when we finalize the uh, NHI bill, uh, talking specifically to the trust deficit issue. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson. Um, and thank you to the presenters. I, I, I am in agreement. Um, poor mental health means no health. Um, I think the two definitely go hand in hand. And I'm sorry if I missed it because I'm in a very bad area at the moment and perhaps you can help me. Because in my experience in going to do lots and lots of oversights of hospitals, clinics, um, rural medical facilities, very, very seldom in any hospital and certainly in, in, in 98, 99% of clinics do I find anything that is remotely close to anybody in a position to offer psychological um or support for people who are suffering from mental health issues. And I think this is very concerning. Perhaps you can highlight this for me, or perhaps you've got information that I don't have access to at the moment. And that's principally what exactly, how many hospitals or clinics in the public sector at the moment actually have psychological services um, and support for, for, for the communities. And, and, and possibly you can give me figures in the public sector as well. And I know there's a big diversity because one seems to take more interest in mental health than the other. Um, and I, I think that's my biggest concern because if they are not there now, then how do we introduce them through the NHI bill? Um, and I think psychological services are absolutely critical, but principally non-existent in the country at the moment. Thank you. No, 
Good morning, and uh, I want to also thank you for the presentation. So I take it from your presentation that the NHI bill does not adequately cover equitable access to mental health. Uh, my questions are, in what ways do you think the NHI bill will negatively impact your mandate? And two is, what should be included in the bill to properly address your mandate? Is it, you know, from what you've, from what you've mentioned in your presentation, there are obviously things that need to be addressed. I, I'm asking you, what do you think needs to be included in the bill to properly address your mandate? And three, I noted that you made mention on updating norms and standards as well as monitoring and evaluation. Now, did you know that government currently evaluates and monitors 7% of all healthcare facilities? Considering this, how will the lack of monitoring as it stands affect the industry? In your opinion, what needs to be done further to address this? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson. <clears throat> Thank you for the presentation. We, we heard yesterday that um, mental health uh, needs to be a standalone or that it should be uh, mentioned within the NHI bill. And uh, today we are hearing from two groups which also represent mental health. I just want to mention to you that uh, mental health is mentioned 11 times in the bill uh, and in the NHI bill in particular, and that uh, it would be captured or it would be contained within the regulations for uh, accreditation as any other service would be within the NHI. And uh, I wanted to know what your, your view would be on that, whether you would also be of the view that it should be uh, mentioned specifically in terms of um, remuneration in the bill or whether that can of course be contained and mentioned within the regulations. Thank you, Chair. Uh, may I request that um, as I start adding my questions, you put back slide that has a heading, point number seven, because some of the questions I would like to ask are in relation to that. Um, I think the last, on the last, starting from the back is the third slide from the back. But while we are looking for that, let me then start. Uh, on the issues of what Honorable Duratem has also raised, the rural, uh, the rural mental health. <clears throat> uh, Prof, this is not the this is not the, the actual one, the last part. Going backwards, uh, number seven, yes. The number that is coming in now. Let, let me then start on this one six issues of concern. Uh, I was just wondering whether uh, in relation to this slide, I'll go back one more back, or well, there are many, maybe two sevens. Uh, okay, no, sorry, okay, now stay with that, with, with that seven. I was just wondering if maybe you are familiar with the um, a program uh, that was done and called the Presidential Health Compact. Uh, it was among other things, it has certain, uh, I, I always look at that program as an enabler and a, a very important uh, a step towards NHI realization. Uh, because part of it also speaks to 
the Anti-Corruption Health Forum, but it touches on issues related to human resource, not just only for mental health, but generally um, infrastructure and that improvement. If maybe that uh, will not be one of the things you would push that be accelerated as an enabler uh, for uh, some of the things that you have raised as challenges regarding that part, issues of uh, uh, infrastructure, health, human resource, and all that. Number two, you do raise the issue of the mental health expertise that you would like to see in most or all the committees. Now, we just want to be getting a guide from you. Will you be happy with a generalist psychologist or you would like we are seeing today getting every other psychologist discipline, whether it's counseling, clinical, uh, educational, or you would probably advocate for just a generalist to be in those uh, 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 committees if that was to be considered. Now, on the issues of rural health, uh, I would imagine you also won't take away the bias that you two have, because uh, I would <laughs> ask you how many, you did indicate that even among psychologists, there are very few in the rural areas. Why? Is it because the environment is not good? If it's not good for, who will start? Will it be a nurse, a doctor, a psychologist, or who will ever start? Or what will enable you, few as you are, to also populate and be available in the rural areas? Because, uh, <clears throat> Your presentation is actually saying, yes, the health, mental health services are probably optimal in the urban areas, but insignificantly negligible in the rural areas. Now, uh, who has to rearrange that? Who has to configure that differently? Uh, I, I always imagine of in the deep rural area, a child with disability whose mother is uneducated, and is single, and has got a mental illness. None of us here sitting in this platform ever reaches that family. And uh, that would be a litmus test of not only just health services, but including mental health to be in that family and that home. So we probably should all collectively take a, a bit of a, a, a very strong deep breath in terms of where are we in terms of that part, we may just be focusing on the urban uh, population. Uh, on the asylum seekers, uh, you did indicate that there may be challenges in, in their registration, but I was thinking maybe we're going to offer sort of uh, an advice. How do you think that could be improved, uh, especially if they are undocumented them, uh, but they have to be accessing health services. Now, there has to be some way that they have the, 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 the government or the health service provider will know who have I given to. So how would you maybe, uh, what would be your advice or a contribution in that regard? Okay, we, may we then get your responses on our questions and then we'll take it from there, thanks. Thank you, Chair. And, uh, Thank you to the honourable committee members for uh, 
for all of the uh, for all of the questions and the, the points of of clarification. Uh, Chair, I think that um, important to to remember here is that, that of course I indicated right at the outset of the presentation that the that the term mental health has of course been raised eleven times in the bill itself. So it's not that mental health is not referred to in the bill, but in our view, it is it, it is referred to almost peripherally in the bill. And there are specifics that I think that we would have uh, we would have liked to have seen this foregrounded somewhat more uh, in the bill itself. Um, on the on the on the the question of uh, uh, ment uh, benefits, the benefits advisory committee, um, I think that uh, again. You know, we would we are fully aware that uh, there would be a benefits advisory committee. I think the point that we were really wanting to make was that we think that uh, psychological expertise needs to be involved in that process as uh, as a significant input to that process itself. Um, on the question of uh, the um, the, you know, psychological practitioners and who psychological practitioners would be more broadly. Um, again, I think that in the main, when, when you know, we tend to think about uh, mental health, there's a tendency to think about uh, psychiatrists and psychologists. Beyond that, perhaps psychiatric nurses. But psychological practitioners could be psychological counselors, for example, who normally have, as I've indicated, a fourth year of study. They do not have six years of study. They do not necessarily uh, exit with a master's degree. They would normally exit with a, a, a four-year honors degree or what would be referred to as a B-psych degree. Um, and so the range of practitioners that could be included here is not uh, merely psychiatrists, psychologists, and uh, psychiatric nurses, but also psychological practitioners, psychometrists, uh, who would do psychological testing, for example. Uh, th so there would be a, a, a much broader range of, of people. Um, on the, the numbers of psychologists in South Africa uh, at the moment, I think that the current rate is something like 2.6%. Uh, per 100,000 population. Uh, and at the moment, there are something like 25,000 psychology uh, practitioners in the country. Now, I think that, you know, if one thinks about the total population that we have in the region of about 60 million, you can, you can see that there's a clear disparity in the kinds of needs that we will have as a population, as opposed to the, uh, the number of practitioners who are currently registered either with the HPCSA or find themselves in the, in the public sector. At 2.6 per 100,000 population, uh, th these are referring to clinical psychologists in the public sector uh, itself. Um, and so the, the point about being under-resourced, I think, is underpinned again by these forms of data that would be available from the Health Professions Council of South Africa. Um, and, and certainly, we'd be able to break this down per category, per rank, etc. On the, the question of, uh, of norms and standards and the, and the bill uh, at this point not being uh, adequately clear on how that would be determined, I mean, I think that, again, you know, as I pointed out, the, the, the norms and standards that are in circulation are, in some instances, more than a decade old. There have been significant developments in the provision of mental health services over the last 15 years. Uh, this is not only in terms of psychotherapeutic modalities and treatments, uh, but certainly in the area of, uh, 
pharmacological interventions that have been associated with mental health care more broadly. And so when we are thinking about norms and standards, I think that we're going to have to think quite carefully about updating these norms and standards in a, in a much more regular way. Uh, on the question about whether mental health um, has uh, has in, in, should in some ways be separate or should stand alone. Uh, I think that clearly what we're saying is that you know our argument right at the outset has been that there needs to be some degree of uh, of integration. But at the same time that we are re reflecting on an integration within the national health. Uh, insurance bill itself and the way that we think about health, we are also indicating that there, there is going to be a requirement for certain specificities to focus mental health so that it is not left to be the kind of stepchild of uh, other other health service delivery uh, nodes within within a national health system today. Um, and so we would we would be suggesting that yes, it has to be integrated, but we think that a greater emphasis needs to be placed on mental health more broadly inside the bill and in whichever policy frameworks and regulatory frameworks um, would in fact accompany that. On the, on the question on whether you know we would think about uh, whether generalist or uh, specifically uh, focused or experts. Uh, need to be on uh, on some of the uh, the committees uh, chair as as many of you will know already in south africa psychologists certainly are trained in a generalist mode in most instances um, they are either trained as neuropsychologists clinical psychologists uh, educational psychologists research psychologists or counseling psychologists as a consequence much of what they are trained in up until the point that they are into their fourth or fifth year even uh, is probably available to most psychologists. Most psychologists will be trained in the areas of psychotherapeutics, psychodiagnostics, uh, psychometrics, and of course, uh, you know, psychotherapeutic interventions themselves. The point that I'm making, of course, is that there may be some instances where specific expertise is required, but in our view, uh, uh, actually, there are many, many generalists who would be able to cut across many of these areas. There are, of course, particular interest groups within all disciplines, and that is no different to, uh, to psychology, uh, where, of course, there are specific interest groups uh, for educational psychology, counseling psychology, clinical psychology, and neuropsychology. And again, we would not be opposed to that level of specificity, but we do think a balance between uh, integration and, and specificity, a generalist uh, representation, and in some instances, uh, such advisory committees may very well require the expertise of uh, somebody with specific training in educational psychology or in counseling psychology or in clinical psychology. But we think that, uh, that as long as we have some representation there, uh, we think that that can be determined uh, along the way. The important thing would be to ensure that there is a representation on those advisory uh, committees and structures. On the question of rural, uh, you know, the rural peri-urban urban divide, I mean, I think that you're absolutely correct, Chair, that, that there is always likely to be a variability in the level of service delivery that we see inside, uh, inside a country that is geographically differentiated as we are. It is also uh, quite clear that uh, populations 
have increasingly moved towards urban areas. And so one would anticipate that, again, the center of gravity for service delivery would be in those areas. But how do we think about rural, uh, rural service delivery? I think that we're going to have to think about models of incentivization uh, for, um, for rural health care. I think that we're going to have to think about uh, the utilization of existing structures like community service placements and so on to ensure that those services are sufficiently ramped up and that there are sufficient posts available in those spaces uh, for uptake at a, at, at a particular point in time. Um, Chair, I, I'm also aware that my colleagues uh, as part of our team um, are, are, are probably also wanting to weigh in at this point. And so I'm going to ask uh, my colleague uh, Santosh Pillay to come in at this time uh, to, uh, to provide any additional views, if that's okay, Chair. Hi, thank you, Professor Stevens. Uh, Chair, if I may, uh, just supplement what Prof. Stevens has already mentioned. Um, I think the engagement uh, from uh, honorable MPs has been fantastic, just in terms of the types of questions being asked. And obviously, at this kind of stage of the NHI bill, these are some of the questions that we ourselves are also grappling with. But I think just to uh, reiterate what Professor Stevens has said, um, and I do hope that MPs might make reference to some of the excellent mental health research that's currently coming out of this country and which has been referenced in the NHI uh, paper, which we provided to the committee, which has been published in the South African Journal of Psychology. But just to reiterate that mental health expenditure right now in South Africa, uh, based on the latest 2019 statistics that we have available, amounts to only 4.6% of the total public health budget and there's wide disparities between the nine provinces. So essentially, this works out to a 12.4 US dollar per capita average on mental health expenditure, which means the state is spending plus minus 200 rand per person for people's mental health care. Uh, this is wholly inadequate. And so despite the mention of mental health peripherally in the NHI bill, and despite a national mental health policy from 2013 to 2020, which has gone largely unimplemented, um, we see that the mental health care in South Africa has really fallen by the wayside. Um, inpatient care in South Africa currently represents 86% of mental health expenditure, and 45% of this is in psychiatric hospitals, which caters for the most serious types of mental illness and not community mental health, which largely is depression, anxiety, and trauma, which is what the majority population requires. So ultimately what we see is that we need a far more dedicated kind of thinking around mental health. Um, and definitely, I think the NHI has the potential to do that. Uh, but certainly as it stands, um, the current uh, status quo is inadequate. Um, I will uh, maybe ask my fellow colleagues also to chip in if they want, but I'll hand over back to Professor Stevens. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Santosh. Uh, uh, can I just check if Anne wants to come in at this point? Anne, anything to add at this point? Uh, thanks, Professor Stevens. Uh, nothing at this point. Um, I think that 
that uh, Santosh has covered uh, the point that I wanted to raise with regard to the national mental health policy framework um, and strategic plan. That was the 2013 to 2020 plan, which, which really has represented um, an amazing uh, framework for mental health and for the implementation of mental health. Um, in South Africa, but but sadly, really um, hasn't been implemented, I think, um, as we would like to have seen it implemented. So that was really the only point which I think Santosh did cover. Thanks, Professor Stevens. Thank you. Um, Daniel Den Hollander, I think you wanted to speak to uh, Section 39 on accreditation. Yes, thank you for that. Um, let me just say, first of all, to, to answer the question, yes, we are aware of Clause 39. However, we do have um, technical difficulties with that section. I would say, just for the sake of time, um, we have put those concerns, those technical concerns, within a document that was circulated um, to the committee, and the CISO written response on the National Health Insurance Bill that was sent to the Acting Director General of Health on the 29th of November 2019, because I don't think that this is now the forum into, into going into the nitty-gritties. Uh, but just to say, yes, we are aware of it, but we feel that there, there's a need for more clarity in how the accredited healthcare service providers or establishments will be monitored and evaluated. And it is recommended specifically because a lot of these, um, not only psychology, uh, but if we think of things like, for example, social work, occupational therapy, and other professions, these are professions that are monitored by professional boards. That's a very important relationship in regards to um, things like, for example, the scope of, of, of the profession. And it is re recommended that appropriately skilled and knowledgeable um, clinically appropriate um, experts in those areas, in our case, psychologists with the expertise in public mental health, be considered key stakeholders or preferred candidates for the appointment of such monitoring roles. And as we said also in that initial contact, um, that CISA is willing to advise and serve on an independent, non-conflicted adju um, adjudication panel for this purpose. So just to, to reiterate that point um, to point number two. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Chair, I, I think I'm going to hand back to you at this point. I'm not sure if we've covered everything. I, I hope that we have, but uh, uh, happy to take any further questions or clarification from, from you or yourself or any of the committee members, Chair. Okay. No, thank you very much. Uh, honorable members, if there are any of you who would like to make follow-ups on the questions answered, uh, I will recognize you on the platform by just uh, mentioning your name, then I'll take it down. Any? Uh, okay. The absence thereof uh, means, uh, Professor, you are, we have done exceptionally a good job. Uh, maybe we would like to uh, offer you the closing comments that... Uh, from our side as a committee, we appreciate this process uh, uh, that has been enriched by your visit to us. Uh, you see that some of the members were asking questions that will assist us in completely refining what is being uh, given to us. And uh, we... yes, yes. yes, I have one question for follow-up question, but uh, yes. Let's recognize uh, Honorable Shengwa. Uh, come through, ma'am. 
Thank you very much, Chairperson. Let me apologize for logging in late through network, but I'm also appreciate the presentation. I have two clarity, second clarity question. The number one is how has the association mobilized to promote the access of mental health care to all South African during this period of pandemic where people lost their jobs and lost everything, etc. To to the clinches at our paper. What are your views on the role that your team should play in reducing the treatment gap in the mental health care in the country? Thank you, Chairperson. Okay, Prof. That is the question of Honorable Shlengwa. Clarity comments? Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I mean, uh, again, excellent questions and thank you for those questions. Uh, maybe just to say that uh, during the course of the pandemic, of course, uh, what uh, the Psychological Society of South Africa had to do was to pivot to uh, significant online presence. Uh, it was much harder for us to think about the kind of face-to-face contact given uh, lockdown regulations. We pivoted uh, almost all our education and training uh, during that time for psychological practitioners uh, to an online uh, set of platforms. And this was, in fact, accelerated over the course of the last 18 months. We think it's been uh, really phenomenal, uh, the kind of uptake that we received. In fact, the kind of uptake through digital uh, modes of training and so on has probably been better than in face-to-face modes in many instances. Uh, In addition to that, of course, uh, many of, of, the, of the practitioners in the sector who are either members of the Psychological Society of South Africa or, in fact, independent of the Psychological Society of South Africa, uh, really switched to, uh, to, to forms of telehealth. Telehealth has become another area that is really, uh, uh, in some ways, trying to think uh, through uh, what the possibilities of access are in terms of mental health. Uh, the traditional model of seeing patients only in the face-to-face form, I think, has now been significantly altered by COVID and by the possibility of increased and enhanced access through telehealth, through uh, telemental health, and through the provision of access to those who uh, may be living geographically in remote areas and so forth. As far as uh, and, and so these are some of the, the items that, uh, that, uh, that we've certainly covered over the last 18 months or so. We hope to continue to do this. Uh, in, in terms of our team and how it is that we hope to reduce the treatment gap, uh, the Psychological Society of South Africa has, has, has been an advocate for many years for a, number of, uh, for a number of issues. The first is to train additional mental health uh, practitioners. I think that the number of mental health practitioners relative to the, uh, the population is simply too few. We need to be training more people. We need to be training people with uh, earlier exit points, not only for those who can afford to study for six years, 10 years at a time. We need to be training mental health practitioners with earlier exit points that we can actually uh, enhance access through, uh, through the number of people available. Um, we also think that it is important to advocate for evidence-based interventions that are 
uh, also uh, not reliant on uh, extended and protracted mental health service delivery uh, models, but that are sufficiently equipped to deal with the kinds of presentations that we're seeing, predominantly those around anxiety and depression at this point. And there, this does not require in all instances protracted intervention models. So these are some of the kinds of, uh, of, of interventions that we would think about having uh, made in the last 18 months, but to continue to think about advocating for the reduction in the, uh, in the treatment gap as we see it in South Africa at present. Thank you, Chair. No, thank you very much for your contribution and your clarity. We will continue to interact with you. Uh, this committee now has got uh, contacts with yourself, even face to face. So in case we do need to contact you, uh, because you are dealing with something that is extremely important in our country, psychological, mental health uh, problems, which by the way, is generally neglected. Even the most richest countries, they do not pay. And somebody scared us to say, uh, when you're seated here, I think how many, 16 of us, any one of the 16 people have some mental disorder. Now there's a big number. Uh, so it means if we are 32 here in this platform, two of us have got some mental health illness. So. We'll keep in touch with you. Thank you very much. Without release you. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much, Chair. And if I may also thank the committee for the time. Uh, we really appreciate the engagement and uh, we re really do appreciate the possibility of making the submission. We stand available as the Psychological Society of South Africa to assist in any way possible to provide uh, any additional research that may be required uh, and uh, to, to assist the, the committee uh, in the refinement of the bill and the implementation and enactment of that. So thank you to all of you uh, and uh, thank you for having us. Okay, excellent, thank you. Yes, uh, Ms. Machalamba, can I invite you? Uh, I have not been able to open the, the, that uh, page you, you, you sent me. Uh, can you show us who's coming next and whether they are ready to come in? Otherwise, uh, I will need to give it, to, or you come up and tell us. Uh, the next presentation is going to be 11.30 by the actual science. Uh, so, honorable members, I will still ask you to take at least a five minutes, uh, five minutes break. The actual scientists, actual society of South Africa, while they are loading their presentation, they'll start after four, three, four minutes, 11.35. Can we stretch our legs, get a cup of coffee, come back, load their presentation, then start? You are, you are welcome, Professor Stevens, to stay behind if you so wish, unless you're rushing to go and give lectures to students. Uh, but you are free to stay and then they'll be part of the next presentation if you so wish. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chair. I think I'm going to, uh, to leave you all at this point, but thank you again. Much appreciated.
Okay. Okay. Now that Mr. Mlaoz has finished drinking his cup of coffee, we can then start. Uh, welcome to the actual scientists, actual, actual society. Very first time Actuarial I meet society of South Africa. Actual society of South Africa. First time I meet such a group. Wow. Uh, we would be happy to listen to you. Uh, please introduce your leadership. You are in the meeting of the Portfolio Committee of Health in the National Assembly. We will be listening to your presentation with regards to uh, the NHI comments. Uh, you will have 45 minutes to make your presentation and then we will then engage with you from the committee members. Uh, your 45 minutes starts now when you introduce yourself. Thank you. Right, right, right. Uh, thank you, Honorable uh, Jomo, um, and, and also all the Honorable Committee members. And uh, my name is Lusani Muraudzi. I am the president of the HR Society of South Africa, as well as the public interest actually. Uh, with me here, I have Mr. Barry Childs, who is the former chair of the, of the, of the health committee of the HR Society of South Africa. He was very involved in the drafting of this commentary. Uh, so we've asked him to come and, 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 and present um, aspects of that uh, commentary that we submitted uh, about two years ago. Um, before I hand over to him, I just want to highlight a, a couple of points here uh, from the HRL Society. Um, the, the first being that we have a, a public interest mandate as HRL Society. We don't have um, a mandate to just look after the interests of the actuaries. Um, we have the mandate to develop the profession in the country um, and the use of those skills uh, it, wherever they can be used. And we definitely think that uh, the building of this system um, is, is one such activity. We are like engineers, but not for bridges and not for buildings, uh, but for, for systems like these, uh, to build a system like this. And when we look at the bill, uh, we see it as a, as a blueprint uh, of the envisaged system. And we are assisting to point uh, areas that may need to be clarified or areas that may need to be fixed uh, because um, the way we look at it, it's very risky and very expensive to make some of these changes once the building has commenced in earnest. Uh, my colleague, Barry Charles, will take you through some of the positive aspects as well as possible defects or areas of concern and uh, areas that do or may require uh, some clarity and further drafting or, uh, or redrafting of the bill as we proceed. And one of the fundamental issues to, to address include the envisaged role of the private service uh, providers and private funders. It should be declared that uh, most health actuaries, and we've got quite, quite a number here in South Africa, um, are very well educated in understanding social systems. Uh, but many, many of them do work for the private funders. And it may at times sound as if our main concern is to defend that territory, but we ourselves are very convinced that a healthy, well-designed system would create room for everyone required who will add value. Um, we hope to be able to address as many of your questions as possible, and we avail ourselves to engage with you, whether um, you know, as a committee, definitely, um, whether individual honorable members require 
clarification of certain positions, certain issues, uh, even caucuses. I think uh, we, we want to say, given our public interest mandate, that we would want to uh, make ourselves available for such discussions. And uh, we appreciate and acknowledge that uh, there may be ideological nuances uh, that we need to be alive to, but really our skill is in ensuring that as we build the system, it's one that would be sustainable to the benefit of all South Africans. I now hand over to my colleague, Barry Charles. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Jomo. Thank you, Lusani, for the kind introduction. And thank you, Honorable Chairperson, um, for the opportunity to present um, and also to the rest of the honorable members of the committee. Uh, I'm assuming that my slides are coming through and that you can hear me okay? Yes, we can. Wonderful, thank you. I just want to fix my sound quickly. Um, I don't know what to make exactly of putting the actuarial society in between two groups of um, psychologists. I think perhaps it uh, indicates uh, that uh, if you study to be an actuary, one needs, uh, needs to have your head examined. Um, but uh, uh, nonetheless, we'll, we'll make what we can of the opportunity. Thank you very much for, for having us today. We must blame our secretary for doing that. <laughs> we are not responsible. He thought uh, that way. <laughs> um, to, to just echo some of Lusani's comments, um, yeah, actuaries are indeed bound, professionally bound um, in our codes of conduct to act in the public interest. Um, for, uh, perhaps if there's an uncertainty about what exactly an actuary is, don't feel shy to ask um, after the presentation. We can include that as one of the questions. It is a frequent uh, topic of conversation amongst actuaries. Uh, it is a, a, a relatively small profession, um, and most actuaries will tell you that they frequently get the question. So what is it exactly that you do? So um, if that is important for you to know, um, we can get into that in the question and answer session. From a healthcare point of view, the Actuarial Society certainly supports the objectives of universal health coverage and a move for South Africa towards a more equitable and effective health system. Uh, we do suggest that uh, some blended model that combines the national health insurance, some form of private healthcare cover, as well as some targeted cost sharing um, would optimize the limited resources we have available. Um, I put this here because these are the, the three general financing mechanisms available for healthcare. Generally speaking, um, cost sharing or out-of-pocket payments are frowned upon as uh, being very regressive. Um, so we wouldn't advocate for broad blankets, um, out-of-pocket payments, but um, some targeted cost sharing uh, may be suitable. Um, and then as far as we can tell from our, our analysis, no country in the world has managed to achieve universal healthcare coverage without some form of private health insurance cover. It takes many forms. It depends on the country and the context, as well as the history of reforming that country. Um, but there's usually some blend of coverage. Um, to touch a little bit on, on our uh, local standing here and where, uh, where actuaries have been involved, we have a combination of skills useful um, for understanding risk, budgeting and financing, as well as analysis. Um, and, and as my colleague uh, Lusani mentioned, um, we, we have contributed much to the policy thinking of healthcare in the past and, and uh, are certainly willing to continue to do so. So thank you again for the opportunity. As an actuary, I'd like to start with some numbers and graphs. Um, apologies for the busy slide, but I'll summarize it just by saying 
that according to the, the UHC service coverage index, and I give a definition of that at the bottom of the slide, um, the, South Africa appears to perform relatively well and among our peer groups, um, given our spend on healthcare and given our, our number of healthcare professionals in our population, we're well within expected performance levels in terms of our, this UHC service coverage index, which tracks 14 measures of access to essential services. Uh, and in fact, on some measures, we perform uh, very well, particularly out-of-pocket payment, where we are much lower um, than our peers, um, given our spending and given our, our GDP level. So when we just look at the high-level data on how the country is performing as a whole, out-of-pocket payments, catastrophic out-of-pocket payments, whichever metric you'd like to look at, South Africa looks like it performs well. We know, however, on the ground um, that the picture is slightly different. And if we look, when we look at um, South Africa um, in total, uh, that averages out what we see in the public and private sector, where there is inequity um, and uh, ineffective spend or inefficient spend. And so our challenge is the effectiveness of our healthcare system as a whole and how it functions together on those metrics of efficiency and equity. When we look at um, other middle upper income countries, and I've filtered out here um, for those only with 2 million population um, and above, um, if we look at the, the, the key proportions of expenditure um, we see that, um, again, it's important to highlight, South Africa has very low um, uh, out-of-pocket expenditure um, internationally. Uh, that's for, for two main reasons. The one is that because of our um, income uh, inequality in the country and high levels of poverty, some people just can't afford to pay for healthcare services out-of-pocket. So there's a vulnerability and affordability problem there. Um, but it's also because uh, we have a very well-developed private health insurance market through medical schemes. If you contrast South Africa to, say, Nigeria, where they don't have as well uh, an established private health insurance pooling mechanism, they have much higher out-of-pocket expenditure. Our government share of expenditure is, is higher than the overall average um, in this uh, upper-middle-income country range at 43% versus 30%. So again, not to say that there are no problems, um, but when we compare these kind of metrics, again, South Africa is not um, out of the ballpark with other, with other countries, and we compare favorably on many metrics. I wanted to start with a helicopter view of our, the, the local finance, healthcare funding synopsis in South Africa, just to put some of the figures in context and also talk a little bit about where this inequity arises from. So the figures I'm going to show are 2017-2018 uh, figures, only because th these were the figures that were in hand at the time we were preparing um, the actuarial society's response to the bill. Of course, they can be updated, but the, the relativities won't have changed much. So South Africa collects over a trillion rand um, in tax, and that's made up of 38% personal income tax, 24% VAT, 19% uh, corporate income tax and 19% from other taxes. So when we're talking about additional taxes, I always find it useful to talk about, um, you know, people tend to gravitate towards only personal income tax, but there are other sources of tax. And it's useful to consider those proportions. It gives some context. 15% um, roughly of that uh, budget is allocated to the public health sector. 
Then medical schemes uh, attract about, a th in this period, it was about 180 billion rand um, in medical scheme contributions. That's before the medical tax credits. Um, and we have about 30 billion rand of out-of-pocket expenditure, which we think is roughly split between uh, the insured and uninsured on the medical scheme population. It's very difficult to tease out the accurate figures there. We have to use surveys and whatnot. Uh, just some other statistics to, to bear in mind uh, that we also know that about 15% of uh, the population belong to medical schemes. But you can look at it a few different ways when we talk about public and private sectors, which we sometimes um, do very one-dimensionally. While 15% belong to medical schemes, 23% of households have at least one family member on a medical scheme, and 30 to 40% of our population make use of private healthcare providers in the course of seeking their healthcare. And so the picture is a little bit more nuanced than just thinking about uh, medical scheme and not medical scheme coverage. Then within the medical scheme environment, there is a tax credit uh, where essentially how this works is that uh, if you are an income earner above the, the minimum tax threshold, uh, you get to claim back some of your expenditure on your medical scheme cover. So you pay less tax and that amounts to about 25 billion rand, which is about 2% of tax and about 14% of medical scheme contributions. The issue from an equity point of view is this, that when we look at the per capita expenditure of medical schemes versus non-medical schemes, there's about a five times difference in that expenditure on average between the two. So in other words, uh, if I take the average um, contribution for a medical scheme, which is about 2,000 Rand per life per month, um, and I compare that to the, uh, the public sector spend per capita uh, per month, which is about 400 Rand, that's about a five times difference. Now. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Again, it varies by province. The public sector spend varies by province. For all sorts of reasons, different age distributions and burdens of disease, um, the way the provincial equitable share formula allocates uh, money between provinces for the health budget um, is quite sophisticated. Um, uh, uh, there's been some advances in it recently. And then within the medical scheme population, it's also not just the overall average. Contributions within the medical scheme um, benefit continuum range from you know, 800 rand, sometimes lower than that, 700 rand or less per life per month, um, you know, up to 5,000 rand per life per month for extraordinarily rich benefits, go anywhere, anytime you like, etc. So there's, within each of these sectors, there's some nuance to understand. But overall, within these two broad categories of expenditure, there's about a five times difference, um, which is, uh, which is, um, uh, what drives the inequity discussions. Just as a rough rule of thumb, we can touch on it a bit later if it's of interest, um, the, about half of that is, seems to be price differences and about half of that seems to be utilization differences, which speak to access. The rest of the presentation, I'm afraid, is a little bit more boring without um, graphs and whatnot. Um, and what we're going to do is just systematically step through um, the key points in our written submission um, in the various chapters um, that we were uh, that we wrote on, um, and I'm I'm just going to highlight some of the key points in the in the document um, because uh, those were the ones that we settled on as being the most pertinent in terms of our comments. In terms of referral pathways and protocols that are uh, included in the bill, we agree that these are crucial to sustainability. Uh, we know from our experience in medical schemes that if you just let anybody go to any, any particular provider, uh, costs tend to go up in unfettered access to 
um, high cost care in hospitals or access to specialists does drive up cost. And so referral pathways and adherence to protocols uh, will be important to ensure sustainability. Um, and the mechanism suggested in the, the bill um, for you know, maintaining uh, those benefits, those protocols and evidence-based medicine are important and should be subject to regular uh, updating. The purchaser provider split, um, which is uh, allowed for with the establishment of a fund, that's different to the way the public sector operates at the moment. It's more akin to the way the private sector operates with the separation between funder and provider. Um, the literature suggests this is important for accountability and allows strategic purchasing, but responsiveness is key. Uh, it's very important that there are then con some consequences for good or bad performance, and those are followed through. Um, it's not clear uh, immediately from the evidence internationally that uh, with a purchaser-provider split and allowing uh, patient choice that you get significantly, significant differences in behavior and, 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 and patient choice. Um, but what is important is that the consequences of, at least for the management of, of facilities, if they're not performing, and a purchaser-provider split um, can improve that kind of accountability. But responsiveness is key, local responsiveness. Um, we support uh, licensing requirements for facilities and providers. This is echoed in the um, HMI recommendations, the health market inquiry recommendations, that there needs to be stronger supply-side regulation. Um, but we suggest that, uh, that that also be more nuanced and that a phased, phased implementation approach um, be followed. If all facilities are held to some standard, you might find yourself in a situation where the NHR fund is established, but only a small number of, of facilities have met the accreditation standards and then you aren't a, the, the, the NHI is bound not to pay those facilities and so there will be some sort of technical and logistical problems there if that isn't sorted out. The one thing that's a, a bit of a concern is that pricing, the providers being willing to charge the NHI price is part of accreditation. We would suggest that those two be separated and that accreditation be based on the ability to perform services up to the quality standards prescribed, but that pricing uh, form a separate uh, part of the contracting process. The, the NHI can publish prices it's prepared to pay, of course, um, but we think it would be a mistake to include that as part of the accreditation, uh, partly because it will break the, the potential to allow for st proper strategic purchasing, including consideration of value-based care. So for example, should higher quality of care be rewarded? in some kind of way, which is um, what the literature uh, suggests is the right way to go. If you just have one standardized price and that uh, you know, is a one determining factor in whether a facility is accredited or not, you may run into some trouble from an access point of view. Um, as mentioned by my colleague, from a medical scheme point of view, what, uh, what requires the most clarity is exactly what benefits medical schemes will be able to provide. The language in the bill is a little bit loose. Um, Section 33 uses some language um, around uh, benefits not being funded. Um, and then the amendments to the proposed amendments to the Medical Schemes Act uses different language. And we think it's critically important for, for both the policymakers and for participants, uh, stakeholders in the market, in the healthcare system, um, to get greater clarity on exactly how that's going to work. Um, Certainly, we're worried that um, the, if that's not clarified and the uh, NHI benefits are set and then there's a regulation passed to say uh, medical schemes may not pay for this particular benefit, 
there's a significant risk of increased out-of-pocket payment, which would take our health system backwards, not forwards. Um, and that would be a great pity. Uh, many countries allow complementary cover to adapt to NHI benefits rather than being prescriptive from a regulatory point of view. And we would encourage that kind of approach. Um, so what, what we're suggesting there is that uh, is that those um, that wording and those semantics be clarified, and possibly even with some examples. Um, you know, what happens if this particular benefit is provided by one provider but not another, or I want to go to my hospital that's not on the accredited NHI list for whatever reason? Do I have to pay that out of pocket, or can that be paid for? through my health insurance. So there, there, there are a few permutations that could be considered that would help clarify those kind of um, issues. Within the bill, uh, again, the language is a little bit loose on medical schemes versus health insurance, um, which is typical when we think about um, private health insurance internationally, but locally medical schemes are quite different from health insurance. Uh, medical schemes are grounded in a so social solidarity framework with open enrollment, uh, uh, community-rated premiums, um, and prescribed minimum benefits, which do not apply um, to health insurance providers. And so, again, just some, some clarity and specificity um, would be useful um, in understanding the, the role that various um, other uh, health financing me uh, mechanisms will play. Um, the, the, the bill speaks to NHI benefits being determined, taking account of available funds. There, um, we, we, we strongly support that statement, given particularly given current fiscal conditions and constraints. Um, we would or urge a cautious approach to new taxes because of the effect on the economy. Um, there's a little appetite for additional taxes. We saw the response to the increase in VAT, although that's now calmed down. Um, but, uh, you know, whether it's payroll taxes or VAT or corporate taxes, there's a lot of sensitivity there. And some would argue that we're already at the point where any increase in taxes might lead to uh, a decrease in tax collection. Um, and so we need to be cautious. Um, the only thing we would, we would be wary of um, taking into account this point of uh, avail available funds is that there is some variability in tax revenue collection. Um, and you wouldn't want year-on-year -year benefits in the NHI to go up or down based on, you know, what, how, how much tax was collected. And so uh, that would be an important consideration, practically speaking, to give benefit continuity over time. Um, the bill mentions uh, Ministerial Advisory Committee for Benefits. Um, we would recommend um, adding an actuary there. Actuaries have a long-standing experience in uh, benefit determination and pricing. Um, and uh, committees such as that, uh, you know, should have the appropriate expertise, including technical expertise, and in this case, actuarial expertise. Um, speaking for myself, I, I've sat on various um, review committees, for example, the PMB, um, the Prescribed Minimum Benefits Review Committee of the Council for Medical Schemes, and it's useful um, in practice to have a blend of clinical, academic, actuarial and other skills on such committees to, to weigh the trade-offs appropriately. The NHI bill speaks about free services at the point of care. Uh, this is largely because out-of-pocket payments are seen as regressive uh, and uh, more harshly affect the poor. Um, and we appreciate that rationale, but we would urge some caution in not having some kind of demand-side consequences, particularly for elective care, um, and particularly to ensure that there's discipline in following the care treatment protocols. Um, there should be some um, nuanced, carefully constructed um, out-of-pocket payments. Uh, 
um, which would help manage the overall utilization of the system. We certainly wouldn't prescribe that for lower income persons um, and uh, some kind of means-based testing, similar to what we have in the public sector at the moment would be important. We note that the NHI bill speaks about a comprehensive set of benefits and look forward to those discussions. There is a concern around the language of creating expectations that the NHI will you know, be a utopian uh, insurance fund that provides a comprehensive set of benefits uh, free for the population and free at the point of service. No, no country has really managed to achieve that. You know, if it's, if it's, nothing is for free, it's funded from somewhere. It can be free at the point of service. Um, but again, just you know, th there's th those all of those elements need to tie together and be coherent um, in terms of affordability, sustainability, fiscal responsibility, how rich the benefit set can be, etc. This was particularly important. We, we see this is important looking at other examples, even in Africa. For example, uh, if we consider the case of Ghana, Ghana was. Um, uh, uh, they ran ahead of the rest of Africa um, in terms of rolling out an NHR model, and after a few years, had to pull back on the on the benefit promises because they had inadequately um, costed um, the, the benefits that they promised the population, and they had to walk that back, which is again not a desirable situation to be in. In terms of healthcare providers, um, the bill speaks about um, payment on the value of services. Um, which we support um, and gives the appropriate uh, incentives. Um, th uh, this will need to tie in with the um, proper holistic objective assessment and data collection that's spoken about in the bill. Um, and we see countries that perform well in this regard have well-capacitated um, units that monitor uh, the value of services um, and the reimbursement models um, used within those those markets. And we would suggest that um, there's some, some progress be made in that regard locally. P purchasing from public and private institutions, again, we would support that as a means of improving access and equity. There's no reason why uh, medical schemes, even in the current form, shouldn't be able to pay for services at public institutions and pay appropriately, pay you know, prices uh, that more than cover cost as a way of revenue collecting into public, uh, public healthcare facilities uh, and vice versa. Um, the, the, uh, the, the NHI should be able to procure services from private healthcare institutions. We saw just how difficult that was during COVID in wave one. Um, and I think we'll see it again, potentially nine wave three, that we don't have the right mechanisms in place to allow those, you know, that procurement of services between public and private going both ways, which is a shortcoming in our current system. The bill speaks um, explicitly about primary care capitation and DOG-based payment for hospital services. Now, we agree that these uh, methods promote the right kind of purchasing, um, but just emphasize that they do require um, a fairly significant improvement in the underlying data required to make those systems work. For DOGs in particular, you need detailed clinical data diagnosis coding, procedure coding, as well as costing data for, for, for all facilities to set these. There was an attempt to do this for central hospitals some time ago um, through a, a technical task team. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the, it was a key finding that uh, there was a lot left to be desired in terms of the standards of clinical data capturing um, among the central hospitals. 
Capitation on the face of it is simple, but it can be complex to implement um, if it's done properly and does require some data and statistical modeling to assure that those mechanisms are fair. We're a little concerned that um, the, the payment models are locked into the bill. We think that um, it, you know, is not necessary. Those can be dealt with in regulation. Um, the bill should speak to principle, uh, such as value-based contracting, rather than specify this, the exact reimbursement mechanisms, because it's an early stage. Uh, it will require a lot of piloting um, and you know, before something is settled down. On. Um, so yeah, we would just suggest a change in wording there. The determination of prices, again, that's um, important uh, and has always been a point of contention between public and private sectors because of the perception that private sector prices are, are much too high. Um, a, an appropriate process, uh, you know, which we haven't had in the private sector since 2003, where there was collective bargaining that was allowed. Um, we haven't had such a process. The NHI has the opportunity to do that in a monopsonistic way uh, as a single purchaser. Um, and the risk there is that prices are set too low. We know, for example, um, in the medicine world that uh, tender prices for medicines are significantly below prices for the same medicines in the private sector. Um, there's a significant price cross-subsidy there. Um, uh, we, we couldn't support a situation like that if all of the medicines in the country were delivered at current public sector tender prices. That wouldn't make sense for, for the pharmaceutical companies um, because of the cross-subsidy. Prices that are too low may stifle innovation, quality, and limit access. We need to be careful about um, the, the process by which those prices are, are set. Um, primary care contracting units are specified. Uh, we really like the structure. There's a lot of good evidence internationally, but the devil is in the detail. Um, and we would, uh, we would be very keen um, to understand exactly how those are going to be determined, what their legal structure would be. Currently, there's no framework for that from a legal construct point of view. Um, and the, the nice thing that we like about these primary contracting units is that they um, would allow for community-level uh, responsiveness and accountability. Um, but that will need to be still monitored at a district, provincial, national level to assure that there's some consistency. Human resources for health, I've added in here, even though it wasn't explicit in our response, nor is it explicit in the bill. Um, but I'm adding it in here because um, it would be completely irresponsible to talk about healthcare reform and not talk about our human resources for health uh, crisis in South Africa. Uh, we have a training crisis. Um, we have an exodus crisis within some disciplines. Um, and uh, we have an, some imbalance between public and private sectors, many of which could be solved if we um, are, are training adequately, which we aren't at the moment. There have been various strategic plans put forward, um, and uh, it's really about uh, the ability to execute on those to, to try to ad address this shortage, healthcare shortage, healthcare resources shortage over time is of critical importance. I'm just mentioning it here, even though it's outside of the NHR bill per se. The bill speaks about um, uh, the collection and use of data, and uh, it mandates itself to collect uh, quite a significant detail from uh, NHI beneficiaries and providers. We're very supportive of the idea. We can attest um, to the benefits of such data um, for planning, budgeting, budgeting, monitoring, uh, identifying you know, potential for fraud and abuse. Um, but just, and I'm sure it goes without saying, um, but to mention the data here are highly sensitive and require very robust systems for collection and protection, um, as well as for analysis. 
there is, we think, some scope for actuarial expertise um, in the work. Uh, we welcome our, well, our inclusion in the benefits pricing committee, where we have some some long skill. Um, there is uh, slightly, if I if I could, um, if you'd permit me uh, to mention it like this, there is slightly dismissive um, dealing with the cost estimates of what the NHR will cost, uh, both in the bill itself and in comments that were made at the time um, by, by the previous minister. And uh, we, we have some concerns there because, of course, long-term assumptions and projections require assumptions and rely on those assumptions. But that's uh, not a good reason to dismiss um, the need for that modeling because that modeling informs planning and it infor informs you know, how budgets will be determined in the future, particularly given the point that benefits will be made available subject to available finances. It's useful to then know with some level of comfort what the future might hold. And this is where actuarial modeling um, has some expertise and we would be happy to, to contribute um, to that work um, with, the, with the relevant authorities. We have done fairly extensive um, NHR modeling already. Um, uh, there are at least two actuarial models, one from a more public sector perspective and one from a more private sector perspective that could be drawn on. And we would welcome the opportunity to um, share some learnings there with the, the relevant Department of Health and Treasury authorities. Uh, we would suggest that a, a risk committee, a risk management committee, including dealing with the enterprise risks faced by the fund, um, would inc should include uh, appropriate actuarial competence. Again, this is a key part of our studies and expertise, and we would welcome the opportunity to contribute there. In terms of timing and process, um, the sequencing of reforms is important. We've seen this in, in many uh, health reforms around the world. Uh, if you get the sequencing wrong, whether it's uh, you know, a reform to the Medical Schemes Act or, whether, or the, the initiation of the NHR bill or changing of taxes or any number of, of the other reforms that have to happen, the bill is quite detailed in terms of the number of acts that um, require change and are affected. To get that sequencing wrong, it can cause mistakes and harm to both public and private sectors. Um, and so uh, the, the various uh, papers have been published um, in actuarial journals around an ideal sequencing. Uh, we have some concerns that the implementation timeline um, is sort of set in stone at 2026. Um, and uh, what we're worried about there is that these, these sort of set in stone timelines um, are ticked superficially um, rather than executed and implemented with substance. So we would suggest that, uh, that the timeline be based more on milestone achievements rather than calendar dates to ensure that there's responsible progression towards improving our universal healthcare coverage. Um, the structure, uh, and again here, some of these comments will go be going into the wind. Um, there is, uh, there has been some a bit of a single-minded focus on one structural form, um, and that may, you know, it may be that that ship has sailed, and that's fine. Um, but certainly, when we look at other countries, when we look at international systems, we see that each country's health system is a unique manifestation of its context, its history, its trajectory, its social aims, and these can adapt over time. The NHS is often held up, for example, as a sort of, you know, the, the, uh, the doyen of, of, a, of a national health system, but, uh, but it has many 
problems of its own, regardless of it being a you know a one single fund, which is actually a bit of a misnomer. It, it collected centrally, but those funds are quickly dispersed regionally um, to give effect to um, healthcare healthcare purchasing in, in local areas. So it's just a, a almost treat this as a passing comment um, to say that there are uh, many many ways to get to universal health coverage. Governance and public trust, um, which was also mentioned by the previous speaker. Um, uh, you mentioned um, the, uh, the, that there is a trust deficit. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, in my experience in the last 20 odd years in the healthcare sector, uh, applies at many different levels. There's a, there's a trust deficit between public and private health sectors. Um, there is a trust deficit um, between private health providers and funders. Uh, between medical scheme beneficiaries and their medical schemes, uh, and between uh, the, the citizenry and uh, the government. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very important that if we're going to do anything um, to improve our universal healthcare coverage system um, and to, to uh, advance our, equ our equity with such big structural changes to our health system, that sufficient effort be expended to build trust uh, within across the various components and between the stakeholders um, in the environment. While the focus is on NHI and the NHI bill, NHI reforms, um, we, we are very concerned that uh, with all of the focus on the NHI, that insufficient attention is paid to the regulations that are required to improve the functioning of the private health system, the medical scheme environment and private sector provision. An enormous amount of effort and work went into the Competition Commission's health market inquiry, um, and they made an extraordinarily detailed report and recommendations to improve the private sector, both from a funding and delivery point of view. Now, we think that's critically important um, to do those while we're also thinking about NHI reform, because the, the, the cost... Um, to the system, to access, to affordability, etc., will just continue to hemorrhage um, if those, if that's at least some of those remedies recommended by the Health Market Inquiry Report are not implemented. Some closing comments then, and I don't know how I'm doing for time. I haven't been monitoring. I think I'm just about on time. We support, the Actual Society supports improvements in healthcare equity in South Africa. We think that the NHR reform will require a long road of uh, coherent, well-planned and well-executed policy changes. This is really not a trivial exercise. Um, it's, a, it's a significant, it's a difficult challenge. Um, and execution will be, uh, I would argue, even more important than having the, the right policy in place. Um, in the interim, it's vital that sufficient policy intention be paid to the medical scheme and health insurance environment, which is currently in a state of flux and limbo. We've had unbalanced and incomplete regulation there um, for 20 years um, while, while health reform has been focused on, on other things. Um, and uh, that certainly contributed to the, uh, the increase in, in medical scheme costs over time. The extensive work of the HMI should be given its proper attention, as I mentioned. And we're worried that if it's not, um, that it would even slow down um, the achievement of universal health coverage. Uh, we su suggest that the NHI be implemented in a phased approach supported by ongoing analysis, which we're happy to support. Um, and that will lead to the most efficient pathway to universal health coverage. 
those are the end of my slides. Thank you again for the um, opportunity to present, and I'm happy to take your questions. Uh, can you keep your Can you keep your last slide in the last? Yes, sentence? I'll 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 have to reshare it then. Mm. Apologies. There we go. Yeah, and then the, uh, that would be the starting point. Uh, that last sentence is it a matter of emphasis or uh, it is not uh, seen in the in the bill, we suggest implementing the NSHA in a phase approach. Uh, whether that part is not uh, clarified there, or maybe you are emphasizing that's one part that uh, maybe was, it's just uh, directly here on your. Yes. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to um, sully the presentation with cartoons and images of that sort, but my colleague, um, one of the colleagues I work with, has a, has a wonderful illustration of, of what we're saying here, is that if you have a ladder with the steps too far apart versus a ladder with you know, appropriately spaced steps, the ladder with the steps too far apart actually make it very difficult to get to, to, to climb up the wall or the building or whichever you're climbing up. So all we're saying is that the, the steps to climb up the ladder of improving universal healthcare coverage are appropriately spaced and phased rather than attempting too big a reform at once, um, which uh, increases the risk of implementation and, and danger to the system. Okay. Thank you very much. Just that one, uh, the part, last part caught my attention. Also, they said maybe let me not let it disappear. Also, I would see it covered in there. NHI. Uh, the following members have indicated that desire to engage with the presentation in this order. Uh, the first one, Honorable Dr. Jacobs, followed by Honorable Wilson. And the third one, and the last for now, is Honorable Keller. Any other member who probably forgot to raise his or her hand? Uh, I've also raised my hand. I've also raised my hand, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable um, uh, Sokacha, you are number four. Uh, <coughs> number four, Sokacha. Um, Munai, did you say something? Yeah, uh, yes, yes. And me too. Honorable, okay, Honorable Munai, you are number five. Uh, any other hand? Harvard, number six. Uh, oh, thank you very much. Harvard, you are number six. Any other colleague? Any other member? Okay. We have number one, Honorable Dr. Jacobs, two, Honorable Wilson, three, Honorable Kela, number four, Honorable Sokacha, five. Honorable Munai and number six, and the last Honorable Harvard. In that order, Honorable Member stands. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you to the presenters uh, for coming to, to us this morning. We, we really appreciate you bringing some input on the NHI bill. Now, uh, the Chairperson had alluded to your very last sentence on your presentation about the phased implementation. Um, but earlier on, you also recommended that the phased implementation, uh, you, you recommended the phased implementation as facilities with higher standards become available rather than setting hard timelines. Now, Section 57.4E uh, 
speaks about transitional arrangements uh, outlines and it outlines the phased implementation approach which will influence the licensing and the accreditation process this section is supported by uh, this is supported by section 101 l of the bill i have one more question chairperson uh, and it relates to the out-of-pocket expenditure now i may urge you say that uh, out-of-pocket expenditure in south africa may be low uh, and as you show in your slides but i think the important question here is what is the relative value of individuals contribution towards their medical aid to get an all-inclusive comprehensive health benefit i myself know that uh, by a certain time of the year my medical aid is, is used up and especially uh, over the counter medication and, and really i pay a lot of money towards medical aid and uh, it's quite frustrating to find by july that one is is out of uh, funds to use from your medical aid at the exorbitant price which i pay for my medical aid myself and therefore it is quite frustrating we need to really yourselves as actuarial scientists maybe to give us true values uh, from your understanding thank you jefferson and thank you to the presenters again thank you to the chairperson and thank you to the actuarial society um for your contributions today yes i think as actuaries we are very often confused about what you do and how you go about it uh, my daughter qualified as an actuary just a couple of weeks ago and I'm still confused about what she does <laughs> despite her, her very many detailed um, breakdowns of what she's doing at any given time it's all data 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 and obviously that's not the strength of all of us but I think your your um, your presentation was very comprehensive um, and, and I think quite enlightening and um, there's two two issues I want to raise and, and one specifically was and it was specifically under benefit entitlements um you 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 um you talked about the wording being very loose in some of the categories particularly under that specific um headline so i would really be grateful and um, if it's possible um if you could probably resubmit or get information to us as to how you would word that okay and um, it helps us really digest what you're trying to say and and look at the alternative at the moment we don't have that alternative we're not entirely sure how you would visualize it if you could take a couple of the the, the sections that you think are really relevant and 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 specifically where you've said the word, wording is loose and give us your perception of what that wording should say that would be really really helpful um and i'm glad you talked about the human resources for health um and 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 i i i'm a great believer that if there's when you've got no staffing you've got um inadequate health care people just don't have access to the kind of care that they require um no infrastructure you've got a problem in your health department and then of course primary health care is the most critical part of health at the moment uh, if we deal with primary health care adequately would prevent a lot of the the secondary um health issues that we need to deal with however having said that um we have just seen that the um staffing um infrastructure and primary health care 
are the three areas where the budgets have just been cut for the next three years. And this is alarming. But what it does do is, is give me get me excited when you as an actual society say milestone achievements must be the key, not time-based, okay? So that we must measure our achievements or the, the progressive rollout of NHI by milestones as opposed to times. Because we are already, and as you said, you know, 2026, this is all supposed to be in place and running like, like you know, things should under magic theory dust. It's not going to happen right now. We're in 2021. We haven't even started addressing the issues in this bill, let alone beginning the, the rollout. Um, so I think that was a very, very important statement. And, and I appreciated that tremendously. Um, and I thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Chaperson. Let me also uh, welcome the presentation. Uh, I've got two questions that I want to raise. Uh, the first one, you have mentioned that uh, pricing should not be included as part of accreditation. Uh, section 39, subsection 2B, Roman figure 4 of the bill talks about adherence uh, to the national pricing a richmond for service uh, delivered it is not possible to have value based uh, contracts that are not uh, priced uh, that will be my first question then my second question on uh, imposing uh, user fees to manage demand uh, what is your view on an uh, released uh, or pent up or pinned up demand in the uh, South African situation, what should come first to manage the demand or create a situation to understand the real demand in society? Uh, yesterday, we had a presentation from a neurologist uh, who indicated that we should not have a good understanding of demand out there uh, what is your advice on this issue? Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Um, the, the presenter uh, mentioned the perception that private healthcare is expensive. Is it only a perception? Do you think it is a perception or is it a, a reality? Um, um, is it a reality? And uh, have you seen the findings of the HMI on the key cost drivers in the private sector? Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Uh, maybe it's important to... My, my sound seems to be very very slow. Uh, the first question, Honorable Chair, will be the following. Uh, the, the, the presenters recommended phase implementation as, as facilities with, with higher standards. Um, sorry, it's cutting off. Uh, let me repeat, Honorable Chair, 
The presenter recommended phase-in implementation as facilities with higher standards become available, rather than setting hard timelines uh, as of section 57-4A, uh, it said that uh, transitional arrangements outline uh, the phase-in implementation, implementation approach, which influence the licensing and the accreditation process. This section is supported by section 10, uh, uh, 1L of the bill. The, sec the second question is that you have mentioned the, the pricing should not be included as, as, um, uh, as part of accreditation. Section, th section 32, let me just get it good. Uh, um, section 39.2B6 uh, of the bill talks about the adherence to the national pricing uh, regime. regime. No, regiment, okay, regime for services delivered. It is not possible to have value-based contracts that are not priced. Uh, the other question, Honorable Chair, is that significant clarity is required regarding the price, uh, regarding precisely because uh, that the benefits medical scheme can provide. Section 25 outline uh, the functions and composition of the Benefits Adversary Committee, as the Adversary Committee defines the NHI package of the services. It, is, it will be clear uh, what complementary service medical scheme will provide. Uh, this section is supported by section four and section seven. And clause 33, that deals with the future role of medical schemes. And I'm sure uh, you'll try your best to answer my questions. Uh, lastly, maybe Honorable Chairperson, it is important that uh, uh, they clarify all these questions that are put forward because costing of medical aid schemes and as of uh, publicly mandated and publicly administered NHI is what I believe is the key. Thanks. We don't need such a pause, Honorable Harvard. Start if it is your turn. Okay, thank you, Honorable Chair. And my question for presenter on your concern about the determination of prices, do you refer to the Office of Health Products Procurement or the purchasing section of the bill? Thank you. Is there any member that I've left out to ask a question? Okay. Uh, maybe then let me just pause the two from my side. Uh, in your presentation, you are cautioning parliament that due to demand side consequences, fair costing sharing needs to be considered to help manage benefits 
and cost for all. Now, section seven in brackets two outlines circumstances where some form of cost sharing will apply when users do not follow the defined uh, care pathways. Uh, so you have this embedded on the NHI policy. Uh, so meaning that it does support this uh, principle. Uh, a fee will definitely be imposed for non-adherence. Uh, do you have uh, something to add on this or maybe you have a challenge with this policy? We did mention it maybe similar to the one I asked in the last slide as to uh, you are bringing it up maybe as an emphasis rather than saying you didn't see it or uh, you probably have a challenge with that. Now, the other part uh, in your presentation, uh, in basically in terms of medical aid scheme cover, you are suggesting a duplicative medical aid scheme cover. Uh, and you are actually saying you would wish that maybe it be considered, was it will then assist some of the um, users to bypass the NHI service platform. Now, under what circumstances would you suggest that certain South Africans should be able to bypass uh, the NHI service platform? Uh, if also you can add on, if maybe this is based on some research that you have done elsewhere in the world or somewhere else. Uh, if that were to happen, would you have uh, what would be your comments if someone were to say that might have a long-term economic impact, which probably may be negative, uh, both for NHI uh, fund and also for uh, just managing uh, health systems in our country? What would be your take on that? Uh, then maybe you can then respond uh, to some of our questions. Thanks. Go ahead, Barry. Thank you, Lasani. Thank you, um, honorable members. You've challenged my note-taking ability um, just about to the point of breaking. I will try and address all of the, uh, the comments um, in order. So my comments around phasing, which came from a couple of, um, of honorable members' comments, uh, yes, they are largely for emphasis. Um, we note that there is a discussion in the bill about phased implementation. Um, and uh, I guess what I'm trying to emphasize there is that those the clear milestones be set rather than artificially imposed timelines. Timelines are fine as targets, um, but uh, to cross a, you know, a timeline, whether it's 2021 or 2026, and say, okay, well, now we're automatically in the next phase, we think that would be a mistake and would give a false impression to the population about where we are in the development of NHI. So that phased approach is important, and I think there should be a monitoring mechanism to keep uh, tabs of you know, what the target was to reach certain milestones and how far we've progressed um, along that milestone so that we can keep the process um, honest and transparent as we progressively, progressively realize uh, universal health coverage. Um, a couple of questions raised, um, Section 33 and the role of medical schemes. I'm going to come to that last um, because, Mr. Chairperson, you, um, you you raised that point, I think, in, in the right kind of way, and I'd like to deal with that a little bit more substantially. Um, on the loose wording, the kind of example th that I'm talking about are, in some places, the bill speaks about um, 
benefits that are not funded by the NHI. And in other places, it speaks about benefits that aren't covered by the NHI. So let me give you an example of where um, there may be some ambiguity there. Let's say, for example, um, the, the NHI covers appendicectomies. Um, but in order to qualify for appendicectomies, you need to go through uh, a certain referral pathway and follow certain protocols. So if, the, if there was a benefit list, uh, appendicectomies would appear on the list. Appendicectomies would be covered by the NHI. Um, but if I don't follow the particular care treatment referral protocols and pathways, then um, the NHI wouldn't pay for my appendicectomy. To tie in one other related comment um, that, that, I've, that I've been now asked a couple of times on in terms of the price regimen, let's say, for example, I want to have my appendix removed at a healthcare provider um, that hasn't met the, um, the, the, uh, the national NHI health pricing regimen. So now the benefit is covered in the NHI, but it's not paid for by the NHI because I've chosen to go to a healthcare provider that's not accredited by the NHI. So the question is, under what circumstances am I paying for that appendicectomy out of pocket? And under what circumstances um, am I allowed to risk pool that within a medical scheme or health insurance provider to pay for those uh, circumstances in which the NHI fund is not paying for those services? And so there are a couple of different permutations that I think need to be explored um, and maybe even exhaustively written down so that they can be addressed materially um, and the impact of those can be addressed materially by the stakeholders. At the moment, there's some, there's a little bit of gray area there that I think is stopping um, clear engagement on, on the issues. I think the intention is clear, um, but the, the wording should be clarified so that it's, um, it's, it's uh, given proper effect in the bill. There was a question on whether the, the, the question of private healthcare being expensive is only a perception um, or whether it's a reality. Uh, and I think what I would answer to that is, uh, I mean, whether or not something is expensive uh, often comes down to an affordability question. Um, is private sector expensive for the country as a whole? Yes, it is expensive for the country as a whole. And certainly we couldn't afford a system where everybody in the country belonged to a medical scheme and accessed private cover in the generally laissez-faire way in which private healthcare is accessed. So for the country as a whole, uh, the private healthcare system is expensive. Is it expensive for the current medical scheme population? I think that's more of a deb debating point. Um, there, there are generally higher incomes, um, and uh, uh, I'm sure that you know it's a meaningful part of of, uh, of, of household budgets, even in those upper incomes. Um, but I think it would be uh, less expensive, relatively speaking, for the, the insured population. They would see it almost as an essential service. And we can tell that um, because of the resilience that medical scheme membership has shown, despite economic contraction, uh, not only during COVID, but also in previous years. So yes, it's expensive. Um, the system, the, the market um, is continually evolving to try to find lower cost solutions, find better forms of rationing, better forms of contracting. Um, so it's a bit of a more complicated answer than just, you know, is it expensive or, or not? Um, in terms of medical scheme benefits running out, um, Honorable Jacobs, yes, I'm very sympathetic to that view. I know that that's a continuous bugbear for medical scheme members. 
Um, and, and it touches on this on this other comment of this other question of demand side management. So we know that generally speaking, um, demand for healthcare services is insatiable and far exceeds supply. And so all the health economic literature suggests that you need some form of rationing. Now, in part, that rationing, I mean, well, it manifests differently in different countries. Um, in some countries, it's a constraint on supply. And so you have queues for, for example, for elective procedures. In many countries, uh, you know, you have to wait a very long time um, for hip replacements, cataracts, various other elective procedures. Um, so constraining supply is one way to ration care. Um, following very prescriptive treatment protocols um, and clinical entry criteria is another way of rationing care. Um, and that would be a typical uh, explainer for some of the differences in cost between public and private sectors. The private sector, there's a demand for, um, just to give you an example, uh, you know, renal dialysis um, at almost any age, including the elderly. We know that public sector protocols would limit renal dialysis for the very old because it's not cost effective in terms of the extension in life expectancy. So it really depends on the context, the budget that's available, you know, how much cover and care can be provided, what the rationing mechanism is. So within a medical scheme context, actuaries and other folk involved in benefit design have to make those kind of decisions. Uh, we don't want uh, the, you know, there's no free lunch, you know, without limits and without the ability to manage and ration benefits in some kind of way, including benefit limits, which are the bluntest tool to ration care, um, costs would be even higher. And so there need to be those some kind of management mechanisms um, where in the private sector, there's not a, so much of a constraint on supply as there is in the, in the public sector. Uh, um, there was a comment. Mary, yes. Yeah, make sure you don't miss the question from Honorable uh, um, Gala here about the pricing in accreditation. Mentioned the ah, that, yeah, okay, yeah, that, sorry, that, that came up a couple of times. So let me clarify. I'm not saying that the NHI should pay whatever um, providers charge. Um, I think there should be a there should be an NHI pricing schedule. Um, I don't think it should be as um, as simple as a sort of you know tariff price list. Um, I think it would have to be more nuanced if if there is a desire to uh, reward better quality um, and reward better value. All I'm saying is that we think there should be a separation between accreditation, in other words, the ability to perform the services at the standard that's required and expected by the NHI and the Office of Health Standards Compliance, and whether or not those services can be delivered at a price that's affordable for, for the NHI. We just think that those, both of those are important, but we, we, we think that they should be separated. So you can be accredited, but you may not be contracted because you know, perhaps your facility is not willing to provide services at the right price. There, there's, there's a distinction there that we think is important. Um, and, and that's the point that I'm trying to emphasize in decoupling um, compliance with the national pricing regimen and accreditation. And while you add that, there was also quite a number of uh, references to value-based care. You may need to clarify what you mean by that. Yes. Okay, so so I mean, the value-based care is a is a fairly broad term that's used at the moment to try to get health systems to a place where we're actually paying for improvements in health. We're not just paying for activity, not just paying for having the facility or doing the right things with the facility or that that particular provider. We're not just paying for activity, 
but we're paying for outcome. We're paying for actually what we want to achieve. We're paying for health rather than health care. And internationally, there's a strong move towards contracting providers on that kind of basis rather than just paying for activity, just paying for services or accommodation services. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, given that we're contemplating these reforms right now, it would seem appropriate to think about the best way to pay healthcare providers going forward in a progressive way rather than, you know, do it uh, the, the way that it was done 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, Barry, let record. me acknowledge at that point that uh, okay. what may also be in, informing uh, the questions would be uh, how this could be accommodated for in when one considers the PFMA and how sourcing is done. Um, so value-based care may uh, introduce okay. a complication there. And I think that is what is informing some of the questions, but we'll hear when the members speak again whether that is the, the, the concern. Please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the way to incorporate that and the, the um, requirements of the PFMA is to have an appropriately structured uh, reimbursement model and contract. So that these were, I mean, typically when there is a purchaser provider split, it allows an explicit contract to be established between purchaser and provider. And all of the elements I'm speaking about can be enshrined in that contract. If there's a, a, a typical value-based contract for primary care, for example, would involve some kind of basic capitation fee, ideally on a risk-adjusted basis, taking into account that a provider, one might practice next to an old-age home and one might practice next to a university and they'll have treat different profiles of patients. So you would need to take that into account in the model. But there would be some kind of baseline fee for providing the services. And then a prescribed enhancement to those fees based on a upfront, defined, objectively verifiable set of outcomes. And if the provider can achieve those outcomes, then they should be rewarded. That is the essence of value-based care. And to the extent that, um, that, uh, that it needs to comply with the PFMA, um, it just needs to be properly enshrined contractually in how the, the services are procured, how they're paid for, how the prices are determined. Um, and then I, I don't foresee any problems with compliance. User fees. Okay, there was another question on user fees and a question of we, we may not know the level of demand, pent-up demand in particular. So I think that's true. Um, and partly because of the reason I mentioned earlier, for many healthcare services, demand is insatiable. Uh, it's fairly predictable for some services, for example, emergency treatment and maternity, it's difficult to fake, uh, well, maybe not in the recent press, but it's generally difficult to fake um, uh, uh, pregnancy and maternal cases. Um, but for many other healthcare services, uh, the, the nature of demand is a lot looser. Uh, we've seen it, for example, in, even in, in, during COVID times, uh, how much the demand can flex depending on the circumstances. Sometimes that's a good thing. Um, because it forces some inefficiency out of the system and um, squashes down uh, excessive demand that might have been there because of unfettered access. Sometimes it's a bad thing, for, for example, for things like cancer treatment, where we know that diagnosis of cancer has fallen behind. And so demand, the way that demand manifests um, is not a, is not a, a single point. It's a, it can be quite fluid. And I would argue that there's not necessarily one nominal, objectively uh, identifiable level of demand. Um, 
the, uh, the the problem is if you if you just let it run that you create a benefit expectation and then to curtail it back um, you know may cause um, harm in the system and a lot of negative feedback in the system so the real question is balance how to get the balance right between managing appropriate levels of demand not letting that un insatiable level of demand run amok uh, but without penalizing people that actually need the care certainly you wouldn't want to disincentivize any uh, you know primary healthcare services or diagnostic services or preventative care services etc um, and yes there was a point around the um, the demand management mechanisms and fees um, that might have to be paid out of you know if you go out of protocol or outside of the contracted providers. So absolutely, those are the kind of mechanisms that we're talking about to ensure that there's compliance with the um, desired process to accessing care. Coming, touching on the role for medical schemes Barry, again. On, the, on, that, on that point, yes. is it fair to also uh, emphasize? Mulawutsi, please, yes. let's not do that. Mr. Okay. Mulawutsi, you come in and answer if you can. Don't paraphrase what you can do. We are already over time that we're supposed oh, to do, please. Apologies. Uh, Honourable Chairperson, uh, on that point, then I think I've touched on answering as many of the questions um, as I could uh, remember. If there are still any unanswered questions, would you give an opportunity just to raise those one or two in particular, and I can try and address them quickly? And Honourable Chair, if I can come in, I do recognise a couple of them that may have not been touched on. Uh, should I raise them now? Please do. Okay. And honorable so, members, I've just written there that we are already over the time. We may not do a second round with this group. Thanks. All right. Um, so there was an issue around uh, the value of, uh, even if you look at the medical aid contribution, I think it was Dr. Kenneth who raised that issue. So, you know, what should, what is the correct value that should be paid for the benefits that one can access uh, you know, through uh, medical aids. I think there's, you could just ask a generic question around that. So that was one point that was not answered. Um, and in terms of the, the, the phasing in or the transitional aspects, I mean, you've dealt with that, uh, Barry, um, but uh, and, and in terms of the milestones and so on, and, and I think it would be appropriate to have uh, some more examples uh, talking about that. Um, but I think the, the, the one about the value of the package I think that's something that was not properly dealt with. You want to deal with it? Uh, yes, just very briefly then. Yes, the, 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 what makes medical schemes slightly complex is the array of options. I mean, I think members of parliament are still on PARMED, so that's one medical aid with a finite number of options. You're not spoiled for choice. Uh, it should be very clear what benefits you're getting out, what benefits are available to you versus the particular premium that you can pay. On the open medical scheme market, there is a plethora of options available um, with different price points and different benefits so that uh, people with different levels of affordability can choose what's most appropriate for them and their family. So they, that gives some flexibility. In an NHI environment, um, that's all standardized. So the benefits are, are, are the same for everybody, which uh, can improve equity. Um, but it does um, put you within the constraints of affordability, how much of those benefits can be afforded and what to do with any demands in excess of the benefits that are provided within an NHI. That, uh, that, that will still present a conundrum. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure it's beneficial to go into any more technical detail on that. I, I think that um, 
probably suffices for now. Mr. Chair, I'm in your hands. Any other contributing? Any other additions from your team? Is that the last one? No, we're happy, Chair. We're happy. I think we've dealt with the, the questions yeah. uh, in a level of detail. Uh, we're happy. Yeah. Unfortunately, honorable members, you had requested to make follow-ups. We will not be able to so, do so because we have really overstepped our time through the other presentations. We would like to thank the presenters and the contribution that they have made to us, and they will then leave it at that with the actual society of South Africa, and uh, thank them for coming in to uh, contribute and uh, make us realize some of the things that we need to take into consideration as we refine this NHI bill. Uh, as I thank you, may I also invite now the next presenters, which is Educational thank Psychology you. of South Africa. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, um, Honourable Chair. May I proceed? How many slides do you have? Uh, how many slides? I think we've got about 20, 22. You have 45 minutes to go through your presentation. The honourable members will then, in the, uh, will then uh, interact with your presentation and then you take questions. You probably need to assist us again, as I have asked in the morning, uh, where do you fit in terms of psychology in the country? Yesterday, we had the counselling psychologists. This morning, we had psychology society. Now we have educational psychology. Now, uh, you probably have to indicate to us who is who and how do you fit into the whole family of psychologists in South Africa, whether you are, you are the group that is a private, there's a group on public, or you are a speciality, and uh, is it difficult to have a, a national body of psychologists? Uh, what is it that comes differently from educational as of counseling as of social, psychology society that will help us in understanding going forward thanks yes thank you honorable chair if i could just introduce um, um our association and then we will go into greater detail as to who we are as educational psychologists and where we see ourselves fitting in in terms of the bigger picture of the psychology profession and mental health care um, we we will get there in a moment um, if I can just quickly introduce our association, we represent, we are a professional association representing educational psychologists. We're democratically const constituted and elected, currently around 700 signed up members. Our aims are to promote uh, the aims of the profession of psychology and educational psychology more specifically, but psychology generally. Uh, we also aim to uh, facilitate and promote uh, provision of quality psychological services to the population, and we advocate for equitable mental health care services to the population. Um, if I can just say, before getting to your question, Honourable Chair, just to point out that IPASA and, the, and educational psychologists in general are supportive of the spirit of the NHI, um, including a drive to ensuring equal access to health, to quality health care. Of particular concern to us as an association is equal access to quality mental health care. 
Uh, we acknowledge the previous uh, inequalities in healthcare services and the urgent need to address this. Um, we did make a submission on the bill in November of 2019, and in this presentation, we will highlight some of our most pressing concerns. Um, uh, Honorable Chair, if I can hand over to my colleague, Dr. Machabezi Mazabuko, who will. Um, so you're, the question that you asked, Honorable Chair, in terms of where do we fit in uh, with regards to the bigger picture of the profession of psychology uh, and, and mental health care, that will be addressed under point two of our presentation. Uh, would it be okay if, if we respond to that there? Um, or would you like me to would that be okay? Mm, okay, that would thank be fine. You. Thank you. All right, then if I can hand over to Dr. Mazubuko, who will discuss um, our stance on mental health care generally under the NHI. Thank you, Chris. Honorable Chair and the committee, we do not believe that mental health is given the prominence it deserves in the NHI bill. The South African Human Rights Commission, the report of 2017 states that there is currently considerable underinvestment in mental health in South Africa. If we are to achieve the NHI bill's objective of providing universal access to quality health care for all South Africans, we really, really need to improve the status of mental health in South Africa. National Mental Health Policy Framework and Strategic Plan of 2013 to 2020 states that mental health care services should have parity with general health services. Sadly, this is not yet being realized in our country. According to the World Health Organization of 2017, Mental health is an integral and essential component of health. There is no health without mental health. If we then believe that healthcare is a fundamental right, we then have our work cut out where mental health is concerned. We need to give it the prominence it deserves. The third goal of the Sustainable Development Goals explicitly notes the centrality of mental health and well-being to the overall health status of nations. It is essential that a national health care system caters for the provision of mental health care services at a primary level, which is through promotion of psychological well-being, referring to services offered at district hospitals, and tertiary level, which, is, which refers to specialist hospitals, as also as it is the intent of the mental health care. Mental health interventions work best at the pre preventative primary care level, where we can have the broadest impact and highest levels of success. Admissions to specialist hospitals can be significantly reduced through preventative care and thus access and funding to primary psychological interventions is essential. Investment in mental health has proved cost-effective in the long run. In achieving this goal, 
our community outreach subcommittee is involved in training caregivers in a well-researched program on circles of security for parents and or caregivers. Because as the foundation of mental wellness start from infancy and trained and guided, well-guided parents will be enabled to raise well-balanced children. Improved mental health directly reduces physical illness. A society with optimal mental health will be more economically viable. As indicated by the South African Psychoanalytic Confederation, South Africa is a traumatized society that is fractured and in distress. We need to prioritize mental health to heal as a nation and be free, not just politically, but in our relations together and inside of ourselves. Mental health care at primary, secondary, and tertiary level, including in and outpatient psychotherapy for a wide range of mental disorders must be covered by the NHI and not be left as a service to be covered solely by private medical schemes. Psychotherapy in and out of hospital for a wide range of mental disorders must be made a reimbursable service by the NHA fund as recommended by the Health World Health Organization Initiative for Mental Health. Mental disorders that are covered by the NHI must not be limited to the list of prescribed minimum benefit conditions as stipulated in the Medical Schemes Act 131 of 1998, Section 29.1, but must be far broader including neurodevelopmental disorders, which will allow for the psychological assessment of children, anxiety disorders, as well as trauma and stressor-related disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Mental health. Okay, we strongly believe that NHI and universal health coverage presents a golden opportunity to create equitable and easily accessible mental health care for all South Africans, which will be a significant national investment towards building a healthy society and addressing a multitude of psychosocial problems and social ills. If this opportunity is missed, the consequences will be dire. Some social ills that can be alleviated through the provision of adequate mental health care include suicide, when risk factors such as bullying, family problems, violence, emotional or sexual abuse that might lead to suicide are addressed at the primary level, then South Africa will see a drop in suicide cases. Some other ills are untreated trauma, teenage pregnancy, high school, dropout rates, and academic underperformance. Honorable Chair, I'll give over to my colleague, Chris, to continue. Chris? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mazubuko. Um, Honorable Chair, just to get straight to the, the question that you asked us as to where do we fit in as educational psychologists, 
So the first thing, if I could just point out, Honorable Chair, to the committee is that we are first and foremost psychologists, just like counseling psychologists that you heard from yesterday are also first and foremost psychologists. We're registered with the Health Professions Council as health professionals. We, we do not fall under the Department of Education, although there are many, many, many of us do work for the Department of Education. Um, in terms of uh, our, our core competencies, so the a point was made earlier, I believe, that we're both generalists and specialists. And in terms of generalists, we share uh, the same uh, core competencies as clinical and counseling psychologists, which includes the following. Um, the diagnosis and treatment of mental disorders, uh, psychological assessment, a wide range of psychological assessment across all ages, as well as the provision of psychotherapy. Um, and we are, we are uh, this is part of our training, um, and we are also legally capacitated uh, to provide these services according to these regulations of the Health Professions Act. Um, I would like to just point out to the committee some of the broad areas of uh, psychological service that educational psychologists are involved in. We are involved in preventative and primary care work. A lot of that work is done at uh, school-based and community-based. And we do feel that educational psychologists are particularly skilled when it comes to preventative and primary care work. However, having said that, I would just like to make the point that that is not the only level um, of care where we are um, adequately trained, competent, and legally capacitated to work. We feel, and we there, there's, um, we would say that we are competent and capable to work at all levels of care. We provide um, a wide range of assessments uh, to all ages across the lifespan, and the interventions that we are trained to provide um, include psychotherapy, that would be individual family, group therapy in the community context, and the treatment of psychopathology. Um, I would, sorry, I would just like to, uh, to point out uh, to, to the committee some of the challenges that we of educational psychologists have faced uh, when, it has, when it comes to policy and regulations. Um, and the reason for us pointing this out, Honorable Chair, is because we, we truly hope that we do not encounter similar challenges um, under the NHI. Um, these are challenges that are based on misunderstandings and misconceptions um, of who we are as a profession. Um, and we would like to take this opportunity just to clear up some of those mis, uh, misunderstandings um, and misconceptions. Um, because as I said earlier, as a profession, as professionals, we are very willing and we, we do want to be able to be providers under the NHI of mental health care. So despite our extensive experience uh, and training, we have often been excluded and sidelined um, uh, based on misconceptions and misunderstandings. Um, there are many examples that myself and the, um, the panel that represents, uh, that I'm presenting with can offer to the committee should you wish to, to have more examples of this. But for example, there are many hospital posts that we are not eligible to uh, apply for. Um, there we very few um, government internship posts for our category. There is no community service here for our category. Um, and for example, the Council for Medical Schemes has not done much, if at all, to prevent medical, private medical aid schemes from discriminating against us when it comes to the payment of our services. Um, 
So our, one of our fears, um, Honorable Chair, is that this pattern of exclusion may recur under the NHI because of misconceptions around um, our, our competencies. And we would plead to the, to the committee that, that this not happen. Um, it is a misconception. It is not true that, we, that our scope of practice is more limited than other categories uh, or that we are less skilled than other categories. Uh, we do have uh, specialized areas of focus, but our general core competencies remain the same across categories. And we do assert that there is no legal or factual basis for these misconceptions. And now if I could please, uh, just having um, just explained that, and I hope that that did answer your initial question, um, Honorable Chair, about where do we fit in. Um, if I can now just switch to focusing on where do we see ourselves under the NHI and where would we like to be able to fit in uh, under the NHI. Um, so as I did point out, we do feel that as a category, we are particularly skilled at working at the le level of primary care and prevention. We would like to be included, included on all levels, so primary, secondary, and tertiary care. Uh, and we would just like to make the point, Honorable Chair, that if we were to be excluded, uh, the NHI would lose out on an, a valuable national resource. So if we would like to just make some specific requests to be included and recognized as primary healthcare providers uh, under section 4.4 of the bill, more specifically to be included in outreach teams and um, uh, also most definitely in, in school health services as is referred to in um, under section 4.4 of the bill as well as to be able to be um, contractors um, where reference is made to contracting units in order to provide, um, to be able to provide mental health care across all communities, including in rural areas and in impoverished communities. Uh, we would like to be able to register as uh, um, providers um, alongside clinical and counseling psychologists, as well as alongside registered counselors and be able to re, uh, claim reimbursement from the NHI. And we, we ask that that reimbursement for psychological services remain the same across category. Um, that, that, that in a nutshell is the, the specific request we would like to put to the committee. Um, and we would like to please say that we would welcome further engagement to discuss uh, uh, some of these points in greater detail. Um, uh, or to uh, serve on any advisory um, uh, committee or panel. Um, Honorable Chair, that brings me to the end of our presentation. Okay. Uh, I would then take hands of honorable members uh, uh, then you also start, if you were to be considered a, a category of psychologists to act for committees that would to be implemented, uh, you would be happy to see a generalist rather than to say, no, 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 we are not well represented there because we see that uh, what has been, who has been the, the clinical psychologist, not uh, an educational psychologist. What would be your uh, note that was the members that are going to come in there. Was, that is helping us to say there's this uh, category of professionals, but we are being considerate that we are not saying uh, you would want 
necessarily that it must be you and you alone. It cannot be a counseling psychologist. It cannot be a clinical psychologist uh, who will then take care of all issues of the profession psychology into the uh, into those committees that may be considered. Uh, Honorable Gela, you have indicated you are having an interest to raise a question. Who else has indicated? Jacobs Chair, thank you. Okay. Honorable Sukhar. Jacobs, you are number two. Sokacha Chair. Number two. Number three, Honorable Sokacha. Number one is Gela. Any uh, number four? Okay, we'll leave it at that for now. Start with Honorable. We'll start with the uh, Honorable Kela. Uh, Honorable Kela, you are number one. Honorable uh, Dr. Jacobs, you are number two. Honorable Sokacha, you are number three. Okay, in that order, please. Thank you. My hand is up, uh, Chair. If okay, you Dr. Tim Dubai, you are number four. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Let me first welcome the presentation. Uh, my, I've got only one question that I want to raise, uh, Chairperson, uh, to the presenters. Uh, you have mentioned that you do not believe that mental health is given the uh, prominence it deserves in the NHI bill. Are you aware that mental health is mentioned 11 times in the NHI bill, including section four of the bill? This is also supported by the NHI policy, which states that uh, mental health services will be included as part of NHI. Uh, Comprehensive services benefits which will be uh, determined by the Benefits Advisory Committee. Thank you, Chair. Sorry, I think you will answer after we ask all our questions. Uh, Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you to the presenters for coming to present this morning. Now, I noticed that you had spoken about uh, mental health disorders uh, being uh, remunerated in terms of the uh, prescribed minimum benefit conditions and that it shouldn't necessarily be limited limited to that list of PMBs. But my uh, question to you is whether you are aware that uh, the medical scheme Act has no role in this regard in terms of the NHI, and that uh, services will be determined by the NHI Benefits Advisory Committee, which will be constituted according to Section 25 of the bill, supported by Section 4 and Section 7. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Just one question from my side. Chairperson, uh, the Educational Psychology Association of South Africa is cautioning Parliament that due to the demand side consequences, fair cost sharing needs to be considered to help manage benefits and costs for all. Is the association aware 
that Section 7.2D outlines circumstances where some form of cost sharing will apply when users do not follow the defined care pathways. The National Health Insurance Policy also supports this principle. A fee will be imposed for non-adherence to referral pathways. Thank you very much, Chairman. Thank you, Chairperson. I just would like to ask on the school health services uh, that, that, that they would like to, to uh, provide, especially because they mentioned that they would like to claim a reimbursement from NHI. And then I would like to ask whether if you would like to offer educational school health uh, services, uh, does it mean that you will be placed in schools like the educators, uh, meaning that the, your type of psychologist will be reporting to schools, individual schools on everyday uh, basis or, or, or not? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, was that the last, uh, was that the last question? Yeah, uh, can we get the responses then? Can we get responses from the psychologists then? Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, I will respond to the question that says, uh, are we aware that any uh, mental health is mentioned 11 times in the bill? Yes, we are aware, but what maybe we would like to have is to have more details referring to the mental health. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Honorable Chair, with regards to the second question um, that relates to uh, the prescribed minimum benefits list, we are aware that, uh, that, that what's prescribed there in the Medical Schemes Act doesn't have any bearing uh, on the NHI. However, we just wanted to point out that the list of conditions that is currently on the, the, the PMB list is, is, we feel, insufficient and does not serve the public well. So we just wanted to point out and to possibly just caution the committee not to, to use that list or to rely on it in any way, but rather to look at the recommendations that have been made by the WHO uh, in terms of the, 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 the range of conditions that ought to receive coverage under the bill. Another question. Um, can, can I? My name's Vanessa Gaden. I'm one of the committee. Can I ask for clarity on question three? Um, you said, are we aware that se section 72D? Um, and I'm, uh, yes, we are, but I'm not sure I understood what your question was in, 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 in question three. So I wonder if we could have clarity on that question. Um, and then we can go to question four beyond that. Sorry. 
Sorry, Honourable Chair, could we ask just for re clarity on question three? Chair? Chairperson? The question, the question is around your presentation where you caution Parliament that due to the demand side consequences, fair cost sharing needs to be considered to help manage the benefit of all. It's about you questioning Parliament about the, 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 the demand-sided consequences uh, 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 for cost sharing that needs to be considered. As if you don't understand that this is outlined in, the, in, in, in Section 7 2D. Thank you. Hold on. Um, is, there, is there any other member who would like to make a further clarity or follow-up before you answer? I thank you, Honorable Sokaja. Okay, then you can continue, ma'am. Thanks. Okay, thank you for clarifying, Honorable Sokaja. Um, I think our concern there, if, if we... Um, if we refer back to the SASA presentation earlier on today, I think our concern is actually how that would would take place um, and what systems would be. So, so I think a lot of what we're asking is for more clarity in terms of how the systems would be would take would be put in place, and we would like to engage in terms of how those systems are put in place. Um, so, I think that. You refer to our word cautioning, and maybe that's the incorrect word to use. Um, but I think I think that sort of answers to questions like that were covered in very well in the previous presentation by Sasa, um, who I think is presenting for all psychologists. And what we've tried to do in our pre presentation is look specifically at the role of educational psychologists. Um, and obviously at a preventative level in terms of how we can participate there as well. Um, going to the fourth question about school health services, um, the question was, would we look to be placed within schools? And if you look at our submission, we do advocate um, for um, mental health care services to be placed in schools, to be central in terms of um, being placed in an educational and a school environment where um, prevention would then be um, very effective as opposed to only treatment thereafter. So, yes, we do believe that, that schools need some sort of mental, not necessarily only educational psychologists, but also counsellors um, who are trained and at a four-year level um, and possibly social workers as well. But we do believe that schools do require mental health care services that are, are placed in the schools as they are in clinics and as they should be in clinics and as they should be in other environments. So, yeah, our answer to that is yes, we do advocate for that um, but not necessarily only psychologists, but generally mental health care um, services in the schools. We believe that the schools are very well placed in terms of community work. Um, and the other point that we, we have tried to make is that 
we have a resource in the schools, both in the rural environment and, and possibly particularly in the rural environment to provide family health care and mental health care services um, because there are buildings, they're there, they have infrastructures in place. And if you had mental health care services within the school environment, but also using the school facilities for further after school um, family mental health care and child mental health care, they're ideally placed to serve the community. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Uh, Honourable Chair, may I just speak to the second part of the fourth question, just around the, the reimbursement uh, aspect of that? Um, if I can just say that as... Um, so, yes, we, we definitely we would like to be... We can go ahead, sir. Yeah, we can go ahead, yes. We definitely would we like to be included and be made eligible to be part of school health services um, so to be to be eligible to uh, fulfill posts, uh, the uh, salaried posts as part of uh, both community outreach teams and school health services. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, there, there are very little uh, internship posts for educational psychologists uh, in comparison to other categories of psychologists. And these internship posts could be in schools, in rural areas and impoverished communities. There's also no community service requirement for for educational psychologists, and that community service year could be could provide services in rural areas, in published communities, and in uh, the schools in the, in these places in particular. But over and above that, we would also like to be able to register as a, in, under the contracting units as private practitioners who are who are able to um, provide services to the public and be uh, and build the the fund for services that are provided. Um, according to uh, a, an agreed-upon schedule. Okay. Uh, may I just check if uh, we are now complete and I haven't had any follow-up requests? And uh, that brings us to the uh, close of this session. Uh, I would like to say to yourself, we note your contributions uh, from where we are as a committee, we have been educated by that you all belong to one body. There's no anim uh, animosity within the family of psychologists. Your request to have a specific uh, presentation to us was to emphasize who you are and what are your specifics. Uh, we want to indicate to you that among uh, people who are part of this platform are the officials of the Department of Health who also will be noting what we are raising towards, towards uh, refining this bill, we will bring them to us to indicate their comments with regards to the presentations of all uh, the people, including you, coming in as a team of psychologists, but having different emphasis uh, on this thing. So we thank you very much for that. And uh, you are now excused to... Uh, leave the platform. Thanks. Thank you very much. Honourable. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Machalamba, uh, I had made a request to you uh, and I forgot to ask and check with you. Uh, I wonder whether we are ready. Members are requesting to be considered for these long hours of airtime. 
telecom, whatever that we use. Uh, do you have any response uh, to that, what I raised yesterday? Uh, data will be topped up with 20 gig chair. Thank you. Data will be topped up with 20 gig. So Yippee! Thank you. I must ask Dr. Tembequayo to tell me how big is 20 gig. Yeah? Okay, she will help me because she understands it outside this meeting. Okay. Honorable members, we were due to come back. Uh, at, uh, we are breaking for lunch now. I'm asking, I'm twisting the arm of Honorable, of Miss Machalamba to call the, the people who are next to present to say, rather than half past two, can they make quarter past two? So she has agreed to do that. So we can take a lunch now, uh, but don't come back at half past two, but come back at uh, quarter past two to start so that you can then deal with the next uh, presentation at that time. Can you just show us, Ms. Machalamba, who will be coming in at that time, at quarter past two? Um, it would be, it would be the Council for Health Services Accreditation of Southern Africa. So instead of 1430, we are trying to get them at 1415. And then thereafter, we'll be having South African Dental Association. And we'll then have later Progressive Forum uh, would be the last one. Thank you very much. So you see, I am really confident that by six, we will be releasing you. So you can start making arrangements to go and have early dinner today, not like yesterday. Let's meet colleagues at quarter past two. You have now a break for lunch. Thank you, Chairperson. Yes.